Hello, this is Trent of Dirty Harry Minute. Today's episode is a review of Sudden Impact, the fourth Dirty Harry film from 1983. Or, as my late father called it, the one where she shoots them in the dick? Question mark. He wasn't wrong. Though some may remember it more for being the instalment in which Harry famously says, Go ahead, make my day. Excuse the uh, impersonation there. However you choose to think of it, it's a pretty dark instalment, both figuratively and in terms of the film's processing. The plot? Eastwood returns as walking frigging combat zone, Inspector Harry Callahan. After stopping serial killers, rogue cops and domestic terrorists, he could use a vacation. It's not the shootings, the knifings and the mob hits that are getting to him. That's all part of the job when you're San Francisco's number one J-A-M-F, jive-ass motherfucker. But every man has got to know his limitations, and for Harry, that means too much sugar in his coffee and ketchup on a hot dog. Harry bleeds PD blue, and knowing he'd never really take a vacation, the bureaucrats downtown send Harry on a cushy, nothing assignment to the quiet town of San Polo. There he meets his new partner, Meathead, an art restoration specialist, Sondra Locke. It's not all dog walks and meat cuties when .38 the calibre vasectomies start happening around him. It doesn't take long for Harry to stick his big city nose into small town affairs. Despite the obvious connection with Harry's case, police chief Pat Hingle warns Harry to stop investigating or he will hang him high. As the killings continue, Harry suddenly finds himself caught in the impact zone of a revenge plot, a cover-up and a psychopath. With the help of his new .44 auto mag, can Harry see to it that justice, not the law, is served? In many ways, this is hardly a Dirty Harry movie at all, as you'll discover by listening on to the episode. It's pretty intense, and most of the intensity has to do with someone other than our hero. Do flashbacks belong in a Dirty Harry movie? Not sure. Like Bond hallucinating and Die Another Day, or possibly the flashbacks in the Star Wars sequel series. They don't seem to belong here. The first third of the movie is a lacklustre Harry-type movie, and then it moves into something else that isn't that easy to re-watch. So that's it from me. Please enjoy this episode, and John promises me there's no more fan fiction. We shall see. Enjoy. Dirty Harry is at it again in Sudden Impact. What you doing, you pig-head sucker? You boys put those guns down. Say what? We're not just going to let you walk out of here. Who's we, sucker? Smith, Wesson, and me. Go ahead. Make my day. Clint Eastwood. Dirty Harry. Sudden Impact. 
Welcome back to Dirty Harry Minute, a podcast that once reviewed every minute of the 1971 classic film, but has now degenerated into reviewing that movie's lesser sequels. I'm your host, John, and today we are reviewing Sudden Impact, or Dirty Harry 4. Today we are extremely lucky to be joined by a special guest, one-time policeman in the U.S. state of Washington, former designer of flight simulators, the kind loved by Spielberg but maybe hated by Chesley Sullenberg, most importantly, <laughs> the resident aviation expert in the Movies by Minute community, we have Hal Bryan. Welcome, Hal. Wow, John, thank you very much for that. That is, I can safely say that is one of the best introductions I've ever had. And so uh, so with that, thank you, everybody, and good night. It, it's, uh, <laughs> it can only go downhill from there. Is it true? Did I get every particular correct? You did. You you know me. <laughs> you know me quite well. You paid attention. It's great that after a hundred so episodes, we finally have someone who's tangentially or is a policeman, a former policeman, to actually talk about a movie about a, a law enforcer. So that's that one box we've finally ticked after all these years. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, and this uh, this movie is is a is a fun one. I've got such vivid vivid memories of key aspects of it when I was. Uh, I was about 15 years old when it came out, so it'll be a fun one to look back on. And if I'm correct, you actually got to see it in the cinema aisles and not on VHS. Is that right? That's correct. I saw it in the theater. Probably saw it a few times because you sometimes you have to see something besides Return of the Jedi. Uh, <laughs> when you're a, a young teenage movie nerd in 1983, now I saw Return of the Jedi, I believe, 17 times that summer. Jeez. But uh, uh, John, I'm not sure how you know how old you are, but uh, um, I just learned. Well, we'll come back to my age in just a minute. But I'm I was 15 when this movie came out. People can do the math. I'm sure you I was have born a- this year. I was born in 1983. Oh, okay. So well, you're you're you know you're you're still a young pup, but not uh, you know you're not a, not a, a just a teenager <laughs> now. But uh, anyway, the uh, you know thing of it was back then. If you wanted to see a if you wanted to see a movie and you went and saw it in the theater and if you wanted to see it again, you had no choice. There was no concept. I mean, VHS was just starting to come around, you know, sort of a widespread adoption uh, yeah. in this early '80s era, and uh, it's amazing now because you know, you, of course, in 2020 and 2021, you know, movies are premiering at home now. But even prior to the pandemic and everything else. You'd say, well, I missed it in the theater, but it'll be on streaming or it'll be on Blu-ray. It'll be on something in, you know, six weeks to two months. And and back then, I say a joke about seeing Return of the Jedi so many times, but uh, I had no expectation of when I was going to be able to see it again after that. You know, I figured it'd be on TV in you know, years. It took, I think, seven years before the first Star Wars made it to a, it made its broadcast premiere, if I'm remembering right. I could be wrong about that. But so, and I was, a, so I was a movie nut, so I had to see this one in the theater. Right. Well, I suppose back then it would have made its way to TV when it did, as you say, some years later, and perhaps this movie quite severely edited. Um, right. Yeah. <laughs> you were telling me offline as well that um, many people you knew were actually going to the movies to see the trailer. Just the trailer for this movie brought them in. That is, I'm glad you mentioned that because that is something I think is really, I mean, it's hard for me to grasp, and I was there and I lived through it. Um, you know, now we live in a world of, you know, social media and YouTube and, you know, uh, video SMS messages, all these things. But 
at that time, you know, the closest thing you had to the concept of something going viral was just was just word of mouth. And honestly, that that theatrical trailer for Sudden Impact, which frankly gives away it gives away the line, but it gives away, you know, <laughs> another one of the best lines in the whole film too. Yep. Um gives away that whole scene. And and people, you know, the first time you saw it, people were just just blown away. Like the the theater wouldn't shut up. And then when you'd go you'd go to see some other movie and you'd see that trailer again and here comes sudden impact and he gets he delivers the line, go ahead, make my day. And then uh and then again, uh, later toward the end of the trailer, at least one of the one of the theatrical trailers, he says it again. You know and people it so would just well. erupt it, it, people would erupt in cheers. It yeah. would just go absolutely mad for it. And then the, then it it became a thing where you started to to see people buy tickets, go to a movie, sit down, wait for the trailer, cheer, you know, everybody just go <laughs> nuts at the line, and then they'd get up and walk out. Yeah. And that was that was it was like prehistoric it was a prehistoric viral video, but you had to go somewhere and pay a lot of money to watch this uh, I think it was a 90 second trailer. Then again you you said you've uh, you paid you saw Return of the Jedi 17 times, so I, maybe I the price of tickets that, yes. <laughs> <laughs> maybe it wasn't such an investment to go see a, a movie that you didn't want to see just to see a trailer in it. <laughs> it. It wasn't such an investment, but you know when you account for inflation, it's still you know, a five dollar movie ticket then is probably about a twenty dollar, uh, you know, U.S. movie ticket now. But, um, but it was just I, as soon as you mentioned this movie, all I did was I just immediately flashed back to that era of seeing the, seeing the trailer and and remembering that. And I don't really remember that about any other, you know, movie trailer or anything else. I'm certain there were movies that people would go see over and over and over and and things like that. But, but just a trailer that got such. I mean, I can't overstate the 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 ridiculousness of the size of the response to that. They will just absolutely go go mad. They would erupt in cheers. Now, I rewatched that trailer recently, and it barely mentions the main part of the movie, like Sandra Locke's character story at all. But as you say, it repeats "Make My Day" twice. So they right. surely knew. Yeah, they knew a good thing when they saw it. Yeah, they they really must have, and it's uh, it's. I don't want to get ahead of myself, but it's interesting too that that line or a slight variation of it appears again in the movie toward the end. Uh, but it's a right. much much weaker delivery, and uh, it's just more of an offhand offhand thing. And mm. uh, uh, I don't when I when I rewatched the film again the first time in in you know, a year or so, um, I'd forgotten about that, and then you. Toward the end, when they're on the on the boardwalk, he, he throws off another little, you know, go ahead and make my day. But it's, um, I think that was a mistake. That's something I would have done differently. Well, yeah, the the, fir- the first movie, of course, you know, do I fi- do you feel do I feel lucky? He says right. flippantly and sort of comically teasing the the old school criminal at the start, and at the end, he uses it with a much more venom. Toward yeah, so maybe it is a mistake. I I that yeah. stuck out to me too. But. Uh, uh, you know, of course, the other the other great line in the whole uh, whole coffee shop scene is the, you know, that we're not going to just let you walk out of here. <laughs> who's and, we? You know, who's we, sucker? <laughs> it's just the whole Smith it. and Wesson and me. Um, so I, I I'm curious. I have a, a a question for you. So as a as a uh, 
an Australian, as a as a person who is uh, who is not a uh, uh, wild eyed gun toting American. Um, what when you see when you look at, at movies like these Dirty Harry movies, are you do you look at that and, and just kind of smile and nod and say, oh, yep, that's that's America for you. That's the American stereotype, big gun and blow everybody away. Or I, what's your take on it? And I'm sure you must have talked about this on the show. So I'm being very selfish by asking uh, asking for your insights. But I'm, I'm quite curious and I, I, I will take no offense. I can promise you that it is wielded in such a car. When I watch it, I just think it's a cartoon. Obviously, in my life, full disclosure, I've only ever fired one gun, and it was at a, a Bucks night, what you call a bachelor party. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know anyone personally that owns a gun. I obviously have been desensitized to so many movies, even like Beverly Hills Cop and um, sure. and those sort of movies, that for me, I came to Dirty Harry. When I first watched it, I'm like, okay, he, he only fires the gun you know, a handful of times. And maybe kills five or six people. So compared to to the melees that I see in Beverly Hills Cop and everything, it yeah, I was never really offended or I was never really shocked. I mean, I know America is a violent society, and um, you don't need idiots even like Michael Moore to tell you the statistics on on gun ownership and gun death sure. and so forth. So for me, it's I just see it as part of America's cinematic history. It doesn't offend me, or it doesn't yeah. Well, that's interesting, and I would say that even at the time, even as a, you know, as a as a teenager, it's not. I mean, the film wasn't, you know, it wasn't, you know, Star Wars or Lord of the Rings or something. It's not presented as, as in the typical trappings of fantasy. Um, but uh, you know, I I don't know that I, I don't think there was ever anyone who looked at it and said, you know, that is a fairly realistic depiction of some kind of American police work or anything like that. I think, you know, I think we all looked at it as, as just, just pure escapist, you know, the bad guys get what's coming to them, uh, fantasy and, and, you know, very nearly cartoon like, like you said. Yeah. Obviously the first movie, it's more, I'm more worried about the, the torture aspect and violating the rights of someone rather than the actual use of, of gunplay doesn't offend me so much. Right. Uh, the first, the first movie is such a good movie with moral questions that um, that really are quite thought provoking, and at the time it was made, were quite thought provoking. But the gunplay itself, I just see as a car, as as cartoon. Uh, it's, fortunately, it's you know Coyote and Roadrunner at that point. Not bad, not bad. My ass, you got to strain the remains for the fingerprints. Well, this is the forty-four Magnum Automag. And holds a 300-grain cartridge, and if properly used, it can remove the fingerprints. Tell me, in, in real life as a civilian, have you heard gunshots and so forth? Have you, in, the, in your neighborhoods that you've lived in, have you ever come across gun, gun play, gun violence? No. Not no, to trigger not, anything like uh, that, no. Nope, not not once. Um, I mean, certainly uh, where I live now in Wisconsin, it's a you know it's a fairly rural area, and there's a there's a very active uh, deer hunting season every right. uh, kind of like fall and winter, for example, and stuff like this. So certainly that time you will once in a in a great while you might hear a, a, a single shot, but it's very clearly associated with with the hunting season and things like that. Um, 
and certainly in my uh, oh, nearly 10 years in, in law enforcement myself, um, uh, I always tell people I probably drew the gun more than they might have expected, but uh, uh, never fired, never fired it in anger. Certainly, you know, fired for qualification and practicing, but never, never fired it in anger. There was um, the 10 years that I did it was kind of a smaller town, but, uh, you know, 25, 30 officer department. And uh, no, in that time while I was there, none of them ever had to fire the gun either. So, you know, so certainly the idea of, of Harry, you know, going out there and it's like, you know, twice a day, he's got he's to dispatch a couple yeah. of bad guys. <laughs> It's never in his holster. Right, exactly. Yeah. When does he have even have time to clean it? <laughs> I think it's fair to say in, in where I live in Melbourne, Sydney, any of the metropolitan cities, if if any policeman any day has to fire a gun, it's going to be on the news. You know what I mean? I don't think sure. you can say the same in LA or, or or New York. Yeah, I would say LA, New York, Chicago. You know that you. Yeah, I would. I would agree to that. Um, certainly smaller town, Wisconsin, where I am now. Um, I think I lived here 11 or 12 years. There's probably been two or three police-involved shootings, and certainly every single one of those would make the news. And it's, you know, it's a terrible thing when it, uh, when it happens, of course. But Speaking of Michael Moore, I think, is it, the doc- is it bowling for Columbine or Fahrenheit 9-11 where he, he goes, does he go to a Washington police station? And it's like an unmanned booth yeah. where you leave a message. <laughs> right. I was trying to remember that. I think that was in, uh, I think it was Bowling for Columbine. It's been a long time since I've seen that. So in that one, um, I boy, I can't really explain that or justify it or anything else. <laughs> um, certainly when I did it again, it was a pretty small town, but we were, you know, it was a very, it was a very sort of normal set of circumstances. And we, we had our own, we had our own building and we had a receptionist and you could walk in the door and. Talk to an officer if you needed to, that sort of thing. When you when you saw Sudden Impact in the cinema, were you a fan of the series at all? Had you, it had been eight years since The Enforcer. Were you aware right. of Dirty Harry at all as a phenomenon? So I was very aware of it. But uh, if I was 15 in uh, 83, so 15 when this came out, so it would have been seven years old when The Enforcer came out, if, I'm, if my math is correct. So I, if I remember right, I... I don't think I had seen any of them. I would have just been too young. And again, we didn't have, maybe I might have seen a few minutes of something on, you know, the original film running on television or something. But um, I'm about 99% sure I hadn't seen any of the others, but I was aware of the, I was aware of the character. Uh, From older brothers or something like. Yeah. yeah, And just sort of general pop culture awareness. But yeah, I had two older brothers at the time. Um, But uh, you know, it, it just wasn't. It wasn't until that trailer landed, and it just it just grabbed your attention. It just demanded. You know, you you have to you have to see this. You have to watch this. This is this is unbelievable. I mean, who who in the world is that? Just you know, arrogant and unstoppably cool under pressure. Sit there and you know with his model twenty nine forty four and he's holding it you know one handed which we would never ever do if we could possibly avoid it and you know looking at a guy in the middle of a hostage situation and taking the time to deliver you know one of the best one liners of all time. He didn't look like an old man to you. You know that's it's funny that you asked that because as a kid yeah he did um, 
And then what I just realized is uh, right before I came on with you tonight, I, I was double checking. We couldn't remember when Clint Eastwood was born. So I'm this. I'm the age now that Eastwood was when when this movie came out. Wow! And uh, I tell you, he still feels he still feels like an adult. Like I look yeah. at him, and I could watch him in this movie, and next year I'll watch this movie, and he'll be younger than me, and I'll still look at him like, well, you know, when I grow up, okay, I don't want to go and murder a bunch of people, but I'd love to have a little bit of that swagger, a little bit of that confidence if I ever get to be that age, even though. You know, so that's the perils of just being a being a, a kid at heart, a pop culture, Star Wars movie, airplane nerd. <laughs> you yeah. know, you never never feel like you you grow up and be you know be that much of a that much of an adult. What was your take on the movie's title? Looking back on it, it's a pretty shitty name. It just sounds like I don't know some sort of Chuck Norris movie or something. Yeah, it um, never I'm, really made yeah. any sense to me, and. You know, I think back then and and still now, I think a lot of people, you know, uh, well, in fact, here, full disclosure, just as I was leaving work this evening, my uh, my boss where I work uh, uh, in the Experimental Aircraft Association, in our publications department, my editor-in-chief, um, he's a retired uh, police officer. He's a retired detective. And so I mentioned, hey, I'm doing this podcast, going to, you know, talk about some of this stuff. And then he goes, oh, sudden impact, sudden impact. Now, which one was that again? And I said, you know, go ahead and make my day. Oh, oh, oh. And I'm not saying they should have named the movie Make My Day. But, um, but yeah, sudden impact, you know, impact of what exactly? Is it the, a bullet impacting a person? Is it, you know, the Molotov cocktails? Is it, you know, yeah. Dirty Harry showing up? And I, I, I never quite, quite got it. Yeah, I thought perhaps that was a tenuous meaning, like his sudden ability to cut through red tape and just use his gun, and he has a sudden impact, you know, on justice or something. But nah, that's that's not bad. You ought to you ought to work in marketing. <laughs> the original working title was actually "The Killing Ground." Oh, really? Presumably about Sondra's. Well, there's a yeah. lot of killing grounds where she takes a vengeance, but yeah, that's true. But you know, made a really interesting point that. Uh, you know the the theatrical trailer, uh, certainly the one that I remember, and I think the maybe at least the more common one on YouTube. And I'm, I'm assuming there's some other cuts yeah. out there, but but her whole her whole plot, her whole arc is is just all but non-existent. You know, you you see her in the trailer, but it, it really she really just looks like you know one more sort of damsel in distress, and uh, and really, I, I mean, at, even at, especially at the time, that was a that was kind of a, a a big deal. That was a, I don't know necessarily character wise if it was a super strong role for a woman, but certainly the concept of this woman who's going to just, you know, she's done. She's not taking taking any crap from anybody, and she's going to go right these wrongs in the way that uh, the way that she knows how, and that Harry knows how. Yeah, exactly. In the way that Harry knows how, that was a pretty powerful, powerful thing at the time. It's like, wow, it's, you know, it's not, uh, it's not her boyfriend going tracking down the people that uh, that treated her and her sister so badly. Yeah. It's, it's, it's her, and um, you know, powerful, powerful stuff. And interesting that, as we said, the trailers just don't even acknowledge that. I think they just said, you know, you want to see Clint Eastwood. Uh, being cool and saying pithy things and, you know, blowing away the bad guys. 
Well, here are some of the foreign market titles. They've generally sticked with Harry the character, not Sandra Locke. In Denmark, it was called Dirty Harry Returns. <laughs> <laughs> That's very straightforward. Finland, Decisive Blow. <laughs> I'd love to hear that in the original Finnish, wouldn't you? Yes. <laughs> Hungary, it was called The Way of Truth. I don't know. Um, in Italy, uh, Google Translate hasn't really helped me out. It's like Caraggio Fatti Amarazzare, which sort of means like, go on, kill yourself. I think it's, or come on, courage, or, courage, get killed. <laughs> Interesting. I, I think it's like, make my day, a variation on that, like, go on, kill yourself or something, or go right. ahead. Maybe I've translated it wrong. In Lithuania, it was called Unexpected Encounters. <laughs> wow. I don't isn't, know. That a, isn't that a section on Craigslist or something? It just sounds <laughs> like... <laughs> yeah, well, I mean... It, it really does rather the... under... Sorry, go ahead, Joe. No, I was going to say, it all sort of... Sent... These are all countries, many of them behind the Iron Curtain, so... Sure. Maybe they... Yeah, I don't know. They did have bad access to bad translations. <laughs> right. Uh, and that's something, boy, you wonder about. If you, you know, if you're uh, uh, an average citizen in, in Lithuania in the 80s, as you said, behind the Iron Curtain, um, assuming this, I mean, obviously it had a title there, so it, it got to them at some point. But, you know, what do they think of? What do they look at? Do they just say... Are they just, are they baffled? Does it, does this whole world look of dirty hair look completely alien to them? Or do they, do they look at it like we were wondering and say, okay, this is a, well, this is basically a documentary about American police officers. They just walk around <laughs> blowing everybody away. And aren't you, aren't you glad you live here in Vilnius or. <laughs> oh, I wouldn't have even known the capital. That's very intelligent of you. Um, I, uh, I do, I do my homework. Nice. I suspect they probably may not have had the other movies released in their territories, so it was up for grabs what they wanted. Obviously, Denmark had Dirty Harry Returns. But. Sure. It's, I love how on the nose that is. I think we can safely say they were they were at just a, a, a loss at what to call a movie as America was. Sudden Impact's not much <laughs> right. better. Yeah, Sudden Impact. You could have just done Dirty Harry 4. Hey, what you think about quitting? I might just do that. Hey. You can't quit. That's where we're at, okay, champ? What's the brass gonna do, huh? You ain't nothing but a cop. That's all you've been, and that's all you ever gonna be, champ. Thank you, doctor. And listen, when you get cut, you bleed P.D. Blue, champ. What the hell's a champ? It means you're a jive-ass mother. I I <laughs> well, hell, I, I, I have police questions for you now. Are you, can you answer some of them, perhaps? I will do my uh, my very best. I'm a little bit out of practice, but the, a lot of that stuff sticks with you for quite some time. First of all, would an inspector actually go to a courtroom committal like Harry does at the start if they're not presenting evidence? Would they normally would their would their lieutenant let them go to the court case, or if they're not giving evidence, is, is it a waste of time? They they wouldn't be required there if they weren't there to testify, but uh, but certainly someone at a detective and inspector uh, inspector level would have uh, a vested interest. You know, there's so you feel a sense of ownership, and you've you know this is something you've worked hard on, and you know, assuming that everything played out the way that it's supposed to, you know, the inspector's the good guy, he's caught the bad guy, and he wants to to be there and and see it sort of across the finish line and see 
you know, sort of see that justice is done. And then, of course, in Harry's case, you know, everything's sort of thrown out on the technicality. And as you said, you know, red tape, blah, 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 bang, bang. Fair enough. I thought he he might be sick of... This is a relatively small fry hood, this guy that's... He's from Full Metal Jacket, isn't he? The um, Oh, right, yeah. Yeah. He's sort of small fry. I didn't think Harry would waste his time. But then again, maybe he maybe he uh, wants to see it through. Um, second question I had is, do... In some police departments, are police able to bring their own gun, so to speak? Uh, like, uh, yeah, like Harry... As a bring your own forty four, would that be right. allowed in many, or would you have to get someone to sign off on that? Um, you would definitely have to have somebody sign sign off on that. Um, uh, at my department, for example, when I started there, uh, we were all issued the exact same sidearm. I started off with a, a Smith and Wesson model five eighty six, so three fifty seven Magnum, and uh, a revolver. So. I, Similar, just sort of one size down from the Model 2944 that Harry's famous for. Um, when we had a change of leadership and a new police chief came in, um, so the first thing he did was sort of transition us from the uh, revolvers, which were, even then, were getting to be 100 years old, the designs, to uh, to a semi-automatic handgun, so with a, a magazine holding you know, maybe say uh, 12 rounds of, of nine millimeter. So we were all issued uh, SIG P220s. And then then it was decided that uh, within certain guidelines, if, uh, if an officer was more comfortable with a different firearm and we did and we wanted to buy it ourselves, um, if it was on an approved list, and most importantly, that uh, we ran the full qualification course with it and proved that we could we could qualify uh, to carry it, then we were allowed to do that. And that's when you started to see some variety. But um, under those circumstances, even then, a forty four would never have been allowed. That's that's a ridiculously overpowered uh, overpowered uh, hand hand cannon. Yeah. I mean, I can't imagine any police being able to use it because if you're in SWAT or some sort of urban unit, it's not really quick enough or it's still unwieldy. Who uses a forty-four Magnum in real life? Like what, what arm of police I, forcing I would? People who uh, who want to feel like Dirty Harry, frankly. it's Fetishists, I, yeah. Yeah, I think that, that, is a, that is a bit of it. I mean, it's, um, you know, with the long barrel and things, if you want to just speak practically, it's not an easy thing to conceal um if you're in a uniform and you're wearing it in a holster it, it, it would need a huge you know it's a huge holster um it's very very heavy uh the you know the recoil is uh is is massive um so it's a you know if you fire once it's difficult to then um it's like the the recoil is so much that it shoots the barrel of the gun way up after you shoot. Then it's so heavy that the tendency of the gun falls back down to the ground. Then you've got to use your hands and sort of hoist it back up and get it on target again. I mean, it's just it's it's impractical in in so many ways. And when you compare somebody carrying, say, a, uh, a Glock nineteen, very very common, or Glock seventeen rather, um, and you've got I think one magazine will will hold. Uh, 18 rounds and then one round in the chamber. So you've got 19 rounds in the gun. Um, comparing that to six rounds in the in the 44 before you have to stop and and reload. 
Now, that, that, course, would, that would work out to a horrible line. Did I fire 19 shots or only 18? Yeah, it's exactly. <laughs> uh, then, you know, sorry, I got lost at about, about 16. Can we, uh, <laughs> why don't you just take the magazine out? We'll count them. You know, everybody, <laughs> we'll just work this out. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, something about the, you know, the revolver. As you said, you know, did I fire, fire five shots or six? And um, what was, there was another, uh, another classic line. Um, Oh, I think it was Goldfinger. Big James Bond fan. Pretty sure it was Goldfinger. And uh, there's a line where uh, Sean Connery, I think, I want to say it's when he's... Uh, oh, Dr. No. Was, oh, it was Dr. No. That's right. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's Smith, Smith and Wesson. And Wesson. You've, You've had, had your, your six. six. Yes. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. It, that's right. I was wanting to make... I was trying to tie it into Pussy Galore and Goldfinger with her uh, with her uh, revolver because she had a Smith and Wesson 45. But, uh, but no, it was Dr. No. Smith and Wesson, you've had your six. <laughs> so now I know I know America's got so many police jurisdictions and so many things happen over time. But you remember in um, I know a favorite of yours, the Onion Field. Oh, how sure. Ted, Ted Danson says to the kidnapper, says to um, James Woods, you know, can you can you leave the guns after you've left us because it comes out of our salary? Do you think that's still is that? Do you still? Any jurisdictions where a police officer still has to pay a bond for his gun or leave a... Is that still a problem, do you think? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I I pretty strongly doubt it. And that tends to be a... Uh, um, I mean, that's such a... That's such a gut-wrenching, a gut-wrenching movie. But, um, you know, as I said, when in my department, you know, once the... Uh, once the rules came down that, okay, if it's on the approved list and we qualify and everything else and we want to buy it personally, you know, then we, we had that leeway about what we would carry. Most people did just go out sort of buy their own. And um, because we had, a, it, it was a bit of a catch 22 because we, we were issued sidearms, but we would uh, pick them up at the beginning of our shift and then put them back in the armory at the end of our, our eight hour shift but we were expected to basically be on call 24 hours a day and, you know, carry your badge with you, but you can't carry your badge with you unless you also have, and talking off duty, the rules were if you had your badge with you, you had to have a sidearm, but you can't use the work sidearm because it's got to be locked in the armory. So when the time came that it, we were able to, it was just, it just was simpler, we were more comfortable. And that's the thing about being, you know, being a police officer in a smaller town, everybody knows everybody. And you're always thinking you're going to be, you know, you're going to be at the grocery store, you know, pushing your shopping cart. Something horrible is going to happen. Half the people in the store are going to look at you and, and know what you do for a living. You know, you're off duty. You're just here buying, you know, milk and Wonder Bread. Um, they know that you're a police officer and they're going to have this expectation. You're going to intervene and do something like that. So it was um, it was quite common for us to, uh, to have our own sidearms and to, and to carry them, if not twenty four seven, you know, very nearly full time. Is Wonder Bread a real actual brand of bread in America? <laughs> I just I I love out of all of that. Um, yes, actually, it is. It's uh, it's white bread. So you um, it's and I think it's by I think they made uh, they were made by Hostess. So you, you have Twinkies oh, the Twinkie in Australia. people. No, no, well, thanks to Ghostbusters so, you know, and so forth. Sure. So you know the, the, the story about the Twinkies being that they will never sort of get stale. They will never yeah. go bad. You can eat one a thousand years from now. Wonder Bread has that same sort of reputation. 
Um, okay. It is uh, it is a pure. Uh, I mean, it's pure white bread. Comes in a very you know in a white bag with these colorful polka dots all over it. It's you know as a kid, it was the it was the bread that you wanted to get um, when hopefully your parents had better sense and you know gave you gave you something with a bit of you know wheat in it or something like this because it it looks like bread, but I think it's mostly sugar. Um, so, but yes, Wonder Bread was a, a very real thing. There was also another kind of bread that used to really make me laugh uh, in some markets in the U.S., and it was called hillbilly bread. Wow. And it just, it had this sort of very stereotypical sort of backwoods gentleman on it who didn't have all of his teeth. And it said hillbilly bread, and then along the side of the bag, so long that that you, you couldn't actually read the end of it because you're at the end of the bag and it has the twist tie and everything else. Yep. But in giant red letters, it just says, it's good, like this. <laughs> and it was just, I don't know what it was. I saw it in a store. Is it for hillbillies or is it to be I, see, I don't know, was, or, or by hillbillies? Uh, it was, uh, I was just, I was embarrassed. At just the sight of it, and yet it was it was strangely compelling. So, I confess, uh, uh, my college roommate and I did buy hillbilly bread once in a while, just because the bag was hysterical. Sorry for that diversion, Hal. I just um, <laughs> I always thought, like you know, Tarantino has green apples or red apple cigarettes. I just thought it was a fake brand invented for sitcoms that didn't have any trademarks associated with it. Wonder Bread. No, nope, it is uh, real as it gets. I was struggling not to mention when you were talking about being at the supermarket, Frank Dribben in um, in uh, Naked Gun 3, you know, where he reaches for his gun and can't find yes. it. Oh, my gosh, yes. Oh, boy. Um, you know, when people ask, you know, what uh, – so you were a police officer. And it, people who know me now are, are, are in my current sort of professional career and things. When they find that out, they're very surprised. It's, well, you, you seem like a very nice – person how could you have been a cop so well most of us were actually really nice people and everything else but um they ask you know what it was like so you you know what were you, were you some kind of dirty hairy type it says no it's just <laughs> have you seen the naked gun <laughs> that, that that resonates much more strongly with most of us to be honest what makes you think i'm a cop i saw the commotion here the other day you're either a cop or a public enemy number one <laughs> some people might say both Really? Who? Oh, bozos with big brass nameplates on their desk and asses the shape of the seat of their chairs. Don't you lecture me, you son of a bitch. You know who you're talking to? Hmm? You know my record? Yeah. You're a legend in your own mind. God damn you, Callahan. Do you think this movie stole the, you know, the 38 caliber vasectomy? Do you think it stole that from... From John Savage, you know, we're in the diner at the start. He talks about a Smith & Wesson frontal lobotomy, or is that... Oh, yeah. Is that sort of language common amongst police, unfortunately? Uh, I wouldn't say that's common. Um, at the time, I think it was, it was, uh, it was a, bit of a bit of a borrow at the, at the very least. You know, the, at that time in the country, I think the closest thing that you might have heard is, as a semi sort of typical slang expression would be uh, would be Americans talking about something going on in the Soviet Union or behind the Iron Curtain um, when a political dissident would sort of, you know, mysteriously die in custody of a nine millimeter brain hemorrhage. So that was a that was a typical and, and certainly not tasteful sort of Cold War joke. But uh, 
Yeah, you, and there is inevitably, um, or I, I hope that most would agree that it's somewhat inevitable. There is a gallows humor uh, that comes with this kind of work. I was I was also an emergency medical technician and and did a little bit of work in emergency rooms and hospitals and things like that. And you you see some some terrible things, and you know you're motivated because you're only in that situation because you're trying to. You're trying to to help. You're trying to resolve the problem. You're trying to sort of catch the bad guy or save the person or save the life or pull them out of the, the car accident and these kinds of things. But uh, I think, I, I don't know, I don't know a, a fireman and an EMT or paramedic or police officer um, who doesn't have somewhere around the edges just a little bit of a, a little bit of a dark sense of humor just just to cope. I understand. I, I read once, I think, even the original Nash novel, and obviously they have a shorthand, their surgeons, a way of talking to each other um, to sort of maintain their, you know, their esprit de corps in these trying situations and talking about bodies and so forth when the, the patients are under that sort of maybe helps them maintain their, their sanity a little bit, a shorthand they have for each other that isn't meant to go outside their sort of their group, which I, I can sort of I understand. Right, and that's that's a great uh, it's a great example. It's a great it's a great parallel, and it's not about it's not about uh, it's not about being offensive. It's not it's not about I want to say it's not about being heartless, but it's it's about giving yourself just a a little bit of a barrier uh, between you know your real emotional self and you know the 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 blood on the floor or the body on the couch or the you know. The, body in the car or whatever that said when i first heard the vasectomy joke in in sudden impact i did sort of chuckle as a civilian you know it's just sort of funny it is good fantasy yeah well how would you like to know something of the origin of sudden impact i would you know for for a movie that uh i mean i'm not a um you know i don't have the film memorized or anything else but this movie's been you know, it's been in my collection. I think I had it on VHS. It's in it's in my DVD mm-hmm. library now because I'm still an old school physical media Me guy. Too. It's been part of my life since I was 15 years old. But you know, I've I haven't ever spent a ton of time sort of delving into the background of it, like I have uh, other films that I've that I've uh, loved or been you know somehow connected to for that long. So by all means, I would love to know more about how it came about, especially after that uh, long delay. Well, Sudden Impact was one of the first franchises ever resurrected by a poll. I think Warner Brothers, uh, oh no, I think United Artists commissioned a poll to see if people wanted to see Sean Connery come back as James Bond um, when they were preparing Never Say Never Again. And Clint Eastwood, Dirty Harry came up high on that list of, um, of, of people they'd love to see back in the cinema. Really? Well, that's yeah. interesting too, because this uh, Never Say Never was the same year. As sudden right. impact, and uh, never say never. Of course, going up against uh, Octopussy, um, I do have that right. I don't think it's not for your eyes only. It was Octopussy, yeah, both right. in nineteen eighty three. Yep. So you had the you know you had the official uh, canon with uh, with Roger Moore, and then John Connery <laughs> coming back with his remake of Thunderball with a new title. And but that's fascinating. I had no idea that 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 sort of popular push to bring Connery back, which I was very aware of at the time. I had no idea that there was sort of a, a, a bleed over into the Dirty Harry world. Yeah, in 83, Connery had been 
away from Bond since Diamond, so 12 years, and uh, Harry had been away since The Enforcer, eight years. But here's a quote. In the blockbuster happy 80s, when the studios were scrambling to find new franchises to compete with the likes of Star Wars, someone conducted a marketing survey which showed that if Eastwood were to make another Dirty Harry movie, audiences would come out in droves. End quote. That's fascinating, and um, may I compliment you on your American accent? Yeah, oh, thank well you. Well done. Very well done. <laughs> Just about passed as a native. Wow. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm uh, equally, I'm, I'm sorry as well for everyone who's um, taking issue with that. I love doing the American accents. Yeah, so Eastwood, you know, was always aware that Warner's wanted a new Harry pretty much since the Enforcer had come out. We want another Harry Clint. Can you give it? I don't know if you've seen Honky Tonk Man and Firefox that came out in 1982, the year before, Hell, So I never did see Honky Tonk Man, but Firefox, uh, as you'll recall, it has an airplane in it. So, of course, I've seen, seen it. it. <laughs> that was uh, that was obligatory. That's how I learned to think in Russian with Mitchell Gant. <laughs> but, uh, um, you may recall it was also it was relatively successful, but um, its profit wasn't great due to you know the huge budget because of the special effects. Right. And I remember even then being being frustrated that, uh, you know, it's an airplane movie, but there wasn't any real flying in it, uh, at least yeah. nothing significant, you know, that it was all sort of effects and models and stuff like that. Now I have a much greater appreciation for, you know, the for model work in film, and it's, it's probably time to go back and take a look at Firefox again, because even if it, as a, as a 13, 14-year-old, if it looked a little cheesy then, I, I would have a greater appreciation for the effort that went into it now. Right. So as a result of that, those two movies the year before not doing so well, Clint, Clint came eventually came around to considering the idea of another Dirty Harry. The script itself began with a story that was sent to Sandra Locke, Eastwood's girlfriend at the time. Uh, it was written by a, a couple of screenwriters whom she'd worked with on a small independent film called Wishbone Cutter. I've never seen that. She was keen to do this movie on her own because she was realizing that her, you know, her career was sort of becoming entangled with Clint's and wanted to step out on her own. Quote, Before I knew it, Clint had brought the treatment outright from them, hired a writer of his own choice, and begun to turn my story into a Dirty Harry film, without even so much as a courteous, Do you mind, Sandra? <laughs> so yes, this was... Um, yeah, and also Dean Reisner, uh, so it went to Clint's, uh, Clint bought it outright from her and her, her two uh, screenwriters. Dean Reisner, who polished up all the previous Dirty Harry movies, was going to come in and do a polish of it and make it sort of more succinct, but he took another assignment to ghostwrite uh, Starman first, which apparently pissed Clint off. Um, so instead, Clint used a guy called Joseph Stinson, who was a, a bookstore clerk, but get this, a big Clint fan. Uh, Clint later used him on City Heat and Heartbreak Ridge. So it just goes to show that working in a bookstore can get you into Hollywood, dudes. This is consistent with many critics, cynics of, of Clint have observed that when it comes to screenwriting, he often preferred and prefers young and inexperienced writers you know, who might come with a big, a big price tag, and maybe also the, uh, you know, inexperienced writers might not have the courage to, you know, sort of challenge his ideas uh, when he's always, you know, striking out his dialogue and 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 stripping scripts to the bone. 
That's interesting, and I, I, interesting too that uh, that writer went on to work on uh, Heartbreak Ridge as well, which was, um, you know, another. Uh, I, I mean, I, I think that movie is vastly underrated in terms of the of the quality of the writing, the the dialogue, just the 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 nonstop sort of ridiculous quips and things. Um, but uh, you know, another one that sort of feels you know, very much like a very sort of simple good guy, bad guy, uh, good guy, bad guy fantasy um, movie. I don't know that it has aged all that well, but was a ton of fun to see several to also several times in the theater, just because, because the insults that come out of uh, Clint Eastwood and, um, oh, I forget who played Chuzu, but uh, anyway, their, their byplay back, uh, back and forth was just, was just so sort of just nasty and, and stuff, but you could see such affection underneath it. Oh, big shout out, I guess, to Brian and uh, Perry, uh, Jack, at um, uh, Heartbreak Ridge Minute. Oh, sorry, Marine Corps Minute. Great guys. That was yeah. I'm a big fan of Heartbreak Ridge as well. Come on, sailor. I know there's some question you want to ask me. Go ahead. You might get lucky. Only with humans. So that was the background to the screenplay, like the enforcer before it, it was a bit of a hodgepodge of how it came to the screen. I think maybe it uh, misses Dean Reisner's sort of smoothing out. I mean, does this movie feel like it was written by a committee to you, Hal? It does have a bit of that, uh, a bit of that vibe. And, you know, I think of this, I don't know if this will make sense or not, but I kind of, this movie came out in 83, but I think of it as one of the last big 70s movies because it has what I always think of as that sort of that 70s pacing. And, you know, you've got your, your, you know, the Lalo Schifrin soundtracks are always sort of, they're always sort of austere. Sometimes they're just a little bit unsettling and, and you have, you know, kind of a in in many times a languid pace in this movie, and those you know some periods of silence and things like that. Uh, and it does as much fun as it is, you know. It's so much of the payoff comes in that diner right at the beginning, and you know when Sandra Locke's character and 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 what happens, what East, what sorry, what Harry does for her at the very end. In just giving her, you know, a, a get out of jail free card, that's there's very little weight behind that moment somehow. It's and it's an amazing, it's a powerful thing he did, and he's 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 basically just pardoned in effect a serial killer, and it's uh, it's just sort of this little thing at the end, and then we do the long pullback and the sad, you know, sort of the sad music and everything else, and um, there there could have been. I don't know. There could have been more meat on that bone. <laughs> yeah, I really don't think Harry would have let Locke go. Yeah. Um, have you seen the Maltese Falcon? Uh, ages and ages ago. Assuming you're talking the original, the the yeah. Bogart. Yeah. I've heard some people <laughs> kindly uh, compare the two movies and say that, you know, Sam Spade, you know, he, he falls in love with the main character mary astor is it but but at the end you know he still has to send her to prison because that's that's what happens in those noir movies like that's the rub he's in love but he has to you know he he can't be inconsistent with his own values and um 
I suppose I suppose one positive of the movie, like when it comes to that scene right at the end, we don't really know how Harry is going to respond, do we? So I suppose that shows it's sort of successful that we don't know if Harry yeah. is on board. Right? Yeah, the that's true. Minute. Yeah, we don't. There is a there's there's tension there. Is what's he going to do? Is he going to is he going to arrest her, or is it just you know is this all just going to sort of go away? And what happens now? I guess now I've got to read me my rights. What exactly are my rights? And where was all this concern for my rights when I was being beaten and mauled? And what about my sister's rights when she was being brutalized? There is a thing called justice. And was it justice that they should all just walk away? You'll never understand, Callahan. Inspector, we found a 38 snub in his belt. Run it through ballistics. I think you'll find his gun there was used in all the killings. Then it's over? Yeah, it's over. Now, it's been quite a while since I've seen uh, the last one, the Deadpool, but... Mm, uh, terrible. 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 Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Jim Carrey, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> in a strange bit of casting. But uh, there's no... I mean, there's no lingering reference to Sandra Locke's character or any of that, if I'm remembering correctly. Is that right? That's right. She never appears again. They walk off into the sunset here, but um, they don't marry or anything. <laughs> right. And and there was no, you know, there's no sense of, you know, is he still wrestling with that, with that uncharacteristic choice he made to just sort of let her get away versus, you know, versus justice being done. And then arguing, yeah. Yeah. At the restaurant, he's, what does he say? There is a point, you know, up until it breaks the law. But what he does in the end is he he lets there be justice in revenge. Yeah, absolutely. Why is is her private vigilantism okay, but, you know, not the... Not the public vigilantism of of Magnum Force. I don't know if you've seen that with... um, Oh, yeah. It's okay when a private individual does it, but um, if the right. state does it, yeah. yeah Magnum Force. That was because uh, I do get the titles mixed around. So that was the uh, it was David Soul and the, yep, the four right. younger younger cops and the and everything else just going outside the law and you know they were yep. being inspired by him and and yeah absolutely. What was the you know what was the difference? And that's of course the well it's the classic trouble with the with the double standard is is you know. You know at some point, once you once you compromise, there's there's not necessarily any real turning back. Well, what did you think of Sandra Locke? You know, that's that's interesting because there's because um, you know you had given me uh, homework questions that maybe we'll get to here, but um, so there's something I don't know. I struggle with the words, obviously, because I'm I'm going silent on you. But there's something there's something sort of slightly off putting about her. And then I instantly feel bad about that because, okay, this is a, this is a character who's been through horrific trauma and she's supposed to be sort of a bit on edge and everything else, but there's something, you know, on, on paper. Okay. She has these horrific things happen to her. Um, and the, the bad guys in this movie, uh, that certainly that she deals with are, they're real bad guys. And, 
you know, it's 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 tough, at least in the fantasy context of the film. It's it's tough to say they got anything other than exactly what they deserved, and you know, good for her. But um, and and I, I think this is maybe a, maybe a choice in her performance. But there's a visceral satisfaction as she dispatches the attackers that, that yeah, did so much harm to her and her sister. When she's in execution mode, she's so calm and collected. Yeah. Almost like Harry, you know, she doesn't change her expression. Right. Yeah. She's very, very, uh, she's, you know, she's very, very cold. And I think that's, that's not unrealistic, but, but it's like, I stopped even when I first saw it and it was just, you know, it was much simpler, a uh, simpler time in my life. So it's, this, the movie seemed simpler at the time. Um, I was glad that the bad guys got what they got, but I didn't find myself sort of cheering her on. Like I would have, uh, I, as much as I liked the idea of presenting a strong female character at this time and at that time in history, um, who doesn't, you know, who isn't the damsel in distress anymore and doesn't need to be uh, rescued by the man. You know, I think if, well, you know, if, if we had seen somehow Harry dispatching more of her attackers or something, I think you, you would have cheered it on somehow more. And I don't know why that is. If there's, because Harry is not a warm character, really at all. Other than you know, we see him with, we see him with uh, with Horace, we see him with uh, with Meathead, but um, showing a little bit of uh, a little bit of humanity and even a little bit of humanity with Sandra Locke. But there's something, there's something sort of on edge about her, and I've never decided whether it's it's the performance in this film or it's it's something else she she brings as an actress. Yeah, up until this point. You know, in all of Clint's um, <clears throat> exploitation movies, you know the Ape movies and uh, Bronco Billy, she up until this point she pretty much played like a hoity-toity, you know, sarcastic. Sorry, for lack of a better word, bitch. Sorry, um, <laughs> in, in Clint's comedy period, but here, here she changes, and her reviews were generally quite excellent. And I discovered she was originally offered the role of Carrie, which I can kind of see. Oh, I could see that. Yeah, I could see that very well. It's funny. I was just talking about the movie Carrie with somebody at work a day or two ago. Beth, I saw one of them. He just appeared on the street in front of me. First, I thought I was having some horrible vision. But no, he was there. Older uglier. I followed him for days. I watched him. Then I bought a gun. I followed him to a bar. Let him pick me up. Let him drive me to a deserted spot. Let him think. It was like I was outside myself above me looking down then he touched me and I killed him she yeah she at at that time if you would have I could easily see Sandra Locke and Carrie or I could have seen Sissy Spacek frankly in in this film just bringing that sort of glassy-eyed you know edgy coldness to the role I th- I think it's hard to gauge Locke's performance in this movie because 
just the whole tone of the movie. Everyone's angry. Everyone's sarcastic in this movie. Um, except for his partner, Horace, I guess, had a little bit of comedy and right. uh, meathead meathead farts so that's funny yes. the whole tone of the whole tone of the movie is so dark that it's when you put on top of that the cold glassy killing of um of uh Jennifer Spencer the character's name it's just hard to sort of gauge uh, this is what the the this is what the Los Angeles Times said quote the conventional jocularities of the Harry series mixes poorly with the intensity of Locke's character i think that sums it up very well that does sum it up, uh, sum it up quite well. Yeah, and this is um, this isn't a movie where we the audience doesn't really have uh, you know an, an an agent in this film. The audience doesn't really have a somebody. I mean, Harry is the protagonist, but you don't have that sense that uh, that except for there's a handful of scenes with uh, with the dog where. You know, rough things are happening, terrible things are happening. But now, you know, Harry's at home and he's, you know, reading the paper and smoking a pipe. And we can all kind of take a breather and and sort of bond with him a little bit when he's not yeah. facing all this all this grim reality. Um, and, you, you know, you you feel for him and you get I get so impossibly frustrated by this film when, you know, Harry's off duty and minding his own business and he's getting attacked and. You know, it's it's certainly you know certainly excessive and adds to the body count. But but there are points when he really is truly just defending himself, and and uh, and he gets in trouble for it. You know, he gets he's yelling at him for you know for causing trouble, and you know all he's really doing is sort of driving down the road. I'm not the first to say this. Many people have have said this is like a noir film because Harry's more he plays more the role of like a private investigator than a cop. Right. Um, yeah, you don't you don't get to see him. You don't really see him sort of going to going to work and then having set hours, and then you know now I'm done with work and I'm sort of going home. It's just, and I mean it helps that he, the fact that he's in plain clothes sort of adds to that, and and of course the fact that people are constantly showing up to try to kill him or blow up his car, no matter what. But there isn't. Uh, that's a great point. He does feel more like he's just. He's just sort of a guy on his own and that this police station um, and his supervisors there, that doesn't really feel like his home base at all. Yeah. In the movie after this, actually, City Heat, he plays second fiddle to Burt Reynolds. He plays a cop, whereas Reynolds plays a private eye. But, yeah, there's another movie, you know, City Heat following this where Harry, oh, sorry, his character really takes a back seat to the main plot of the uh, the movie, really. Oh, interesting. Well, that one I haven't seen. City Heat. Yeah, I don't don't put it on any lists. Hell, it's not. Uh, <laughs> there's nothing really engaging about it. Um, what What did you think about the main antagonists that aren't Sandra Locke in this movie? The the rapist, really. I mean, are they, they're just another I, random it, group of losers, I, like in the Enforcer. You know. Yeah, that's that was kind of the sense that I had. Um, uh, and I oh, forgive me, I'm drawing like the the. Uh, the female character's name who was involved. Oh, uh, uh, they call her the unfortunate word with a D. Yes. Um, yeah. Thank you. That's what I, that's what I didn't want to say. <laughs> sorry. <yep. laughs> um, so that was um, maybe at the time that was a slightly, slightly interesting choice that uh, to have, 
to have her be sort of part of this part of this gang when the expectation is is that you know and it's certainly based on, on thousands of years of reality but the expectation that really for the most part only men are capable of such horrific crimes so to have a woman involved in there i think made it um made it a little bit interesting it 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 lent uh a sense of i think of of betrayal um and in in a way it, it i think it's really simplistic to say but in a way that's that sense of betrayal almost made her if possible made her the tiniest bit worse than your sort of garden variety two-dimensional you know mustache twirling bad guys uh <laughs> that were in her band um and afterwards she's she's motherly looking after her children really in a distorted, perverse way, sort of like uh, right. Jackie Weaver does in, in Animal Kingdom or or those sort of movies. I thought she was actually quite... I thought... She, I quite liked her character, I, I thought. She was more interesting than the the main perverse turd Mick. You know, the Mick, the main guy, the mustache that comes right. back for no reason? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Goes back for no reason. <laughs> um, they didn't do... Uh, for whatever reason, I, I, I just didn't think they spent enough time... Really developing. Um, oh, again, I feel terrible. Uh, so you've got Pat Hingle. Uh, yep. Of course, uh, I know is Commissioner Gordon from the '89 Batman film. Right. Um, but uh, his son, who was involved yes. in all this at the beginning, and then had, you know, there's a parallel between his his sort of state of mind and his trauma after these events. Parallel with uh, Jennifer Spencer's uh, sister Beth. Sister, yeah. Both catatonic. Yep. But uh, I don't know. Do you think they they did enough with that piece of it? You just sort of feel like it's so, you know, oh, by the way, I'm covering this all up because uh, my son's in a bad way and blah, blah, blah. It just sort of felt like it was it was sort of offhand. And I, I don't know what they could have done. But it seems like that could have because that's that's a powerful thing, too. The movie is already long enough, but right. <laughs> I would have liked to have seen Harry slowly unearthing the stitch up, the cover up that he did through paperwork or some dramatic means. Um, Cause until that mo, I mean, he knows something's up with the photo that he's probably protecting something, but I would have liked Harry give him something to do some actual investigation, right. maybe through court transcripts or evidence to yeah, how Pat had covered up for his son. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah. Some actual detective work. What do you want from me? I want to know why you're dragging your ass in this investigation. Every available man is on the street. We're logging more overtime than the township can afford to pay. Now, we're going to get that maniac. You believe these killings are random? I reject no theory at this time. But in case you haven't noticed, there's been no truce declared on the muggings, the shoplifting, the burglaries, the drunken driving, all these less headline-grabbing crimes that we face here every day. Now, we're doing the best we can. Maybe that's not good enough. Do you just finish your research and get out of my town? It's more than research now, Jennings. Either you're too stupid or too pig-headed to realize that. Get out of here. The is the same. Now, ballistics will ID the bullet is coming from the same gun. I can just go... You're not going to do one goddamn thing but get your ass out of here. I mean, now I'm in right this goddamn minute. I mean, this movie has no surprises at all. Obviously, the big thing is we know... Jennifer Spence is the killer from from the day dot from the start of the movie. 
there's no sort of even pretense at a red herring of who it could be. And it's just a domino movie, as they say, just explaining everything. And it's just following it through to the end. Right. Harry catches up. Right, and that's what that's what we why we watch it. We're just sort of waiting, uh, waiting for him to catch up. And you mentioned the the runtime of the movie. It does feel as I think it's just shy of two hours, but it 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 feels a bit longer than that. And it's not necessarily in a bad way. It's still, I think, a very watchable movie. But um, and pacing of films now. I mean, as I said, I, I think of it as the last of the seventies movies in so many ways, because pacing in eighties movies is a very very specific sort of very recognizable thing and it's very formulaic but uh um even with that in mind even trying to look through the lens that okay i'm biased now and you know my my attention span is 40 years shorter than it was back then but i still would love to see a sort of a tighter cut of this movie right um we're speaking before about the deadpool that suffers from this movie as well that harry Harry's character is not pushing the story along at all, um, even if the even if the pacing is enjoyable. And in that movie, nothing like this movie, nothing Harry does really until the last ten minutes of the film really matters. Yeah, that's a that's a great, but that's a very jarring point, too. And it's you know when you put it very simply, like nothing Harry does in this movie really matters because the story is playing along, uh, playing along without him and. You know, would have it would have turned out the same way if Harry'd been uh, been killed in the diner in the first few minutes. I don't think we would have there would be a movie, but yeah. Well, I mean, that's pretty much all I've got to say about this movie. Hell, I've got a few more questions for you, though. All right about aviation. Uh, <laughs> did you see that scene where the the no good minor hoods go over the uh, you know into the water? And there's that helicopter sort of shot of Harry sort of slowly walking away. Oh, sure. Before he goes to San Pedro. Did you notice that there was a helicopter place right on that pier? No, I don't think I, re- I don't think I caught that. Called helicopter tours, and I wonder if that was just selected so they could do the the helicopter shot there. Like, why not actually set your scene involving a helicopter shot where the helicopters are? <laughs> that that would make perfect sense. And now, granted, they probably weren't. Uh... Uh, weren't suffering from a, a terrible lack of budget on this movie, but no. uh, but helicopters are expensive, um, and that's interesting to think about too. Is now when we see a shot like that, we quote unquote we know that that's a that's a drone. That's that could be a yeah. could be a thousand dollar drone getting this beautiful aerial pullback and everything else. But back then, you had to pay even then hundreds and hundreds of dollars an hour for a, a Bell Jet Ranger with a big clunky camera either you know shooting out the door or mounted underneath or something like that so so it certainly could make sense to say you know we're going to hire your helicopter but we're not going to have to pay for you to fly very far very you know very far from your own base last of all you know the joan armor trading song drop the pilot what's that about is that anything to do with flying (laughs) (laughs) animal mineral that was the one joke I prepared for this podcast. Hello. That was that was very well done. Although, can I can I have you sing just a few more bars of it? Uh, that would be animal mineral. <laughs> drop the pilot. Uh, well, I had some homework questions for you, Hal. You did indeed. I I did my homework, and this was difficult. This was really hard homework. 
you know, normally homework is like, oh, send me a, send me a photo and, and tell me the 10 nice things you want me to say about you. But this was challenging. <laughs> Great. Well, what, I, I can't recall actually what the questions were, so it's going to be a surprise for me. What was the first question? So forgive me if I don't answer the questions anymore, but, uh, but one of the questions uh, that was asked was, uh, who am I in the movie? Ah, yeah. Yep. And, you, you know, I, I struggle with that. And as, you know, in spite of the shortcomings and, and the nuances and everything else, I mean, every red-blooded American man is supposed to say, well, I'm Harry, of course. You know, I'm <laughs> the, yes, I'm the, yes, I'm the impossibly uh, arrogant, cool under pressure, uh, dispatching the bad guys with, with uh, mirthless abandon, to coin a phrase. But at the end of the day, I decided uh, that the the – the one I identify with most is Meathead. <laughs> Very flatulent, eh? yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's I Wisconsin don't like to brag. Cheese. Yes, it's all that Wisconsin <laughs> cheese. It's those cheese curds that we eat. Um, but yeah, he's a pretty. Uh, I mean, he's he's arguably one of the only only lovable characters in the film. And arguably, after Horace is mur- horribly murdered, he he's Harry's only partner. Right, film. he's he's Harry's, you know, sort of remaining partner and 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 friend. So that was my choice there. Very good. Was was the joke when Horace gave him that, like, because he's sort of a bit old and infirm. He's like, "Ah, oh, Harry, this is you. You know, you're old and over the hill." <laughs> right. Was that the subtext of the gift? I don't know. That, that's how I always read it. It's you know, you're a you know, you're sort of a an old sad sack yourself, and now here's a here's a dog that looks just like you. Uh, it ties in well. I, I thought I was the uh, the waiter who said, "Sir, you, is that your dog?" So it ties in well. That's who I was in this film. <laughs> Again with the accent, very so, so nicely done. Oh, that's fun. Um, okay, two. So, what's number two? Let's see. So then, um, uh, this was this was the easy one. It was such a gimme. It was a favorite piece of dialogue. Now, I mean, you uh, can't yeah. when when people were paying to <laughs> to see a movie trailer to hear that one line. I mean, you, it it can't be anything but that. But uh, right on the heels of that is the, uh, you know, is the, what we talked about earlier that we're not going to just uh, let you walk out of here. Uh, <laughs> who's we sucker Smith and Wesson and me. It's just, that's, uh, that was another terrific, uh, what I used to call a hell yeah moment. Um, <laughs> but, uh, now you mentioned though, your favorite uh, line, or at least one of them about the, uh, referencing the dog. You mean in the elevator? <laughs> yeah. Yes. The whole spiel of it. I think I can quote it verbatim. I think, listen to me. To me, you're nothing but dog shit. And a lot of things can happen to dog shit. It can dry up and blow away in the wind, or it could be stepped on and squash. So take my advice. Be careful where the dog beeps you. <laughs> Love it. Um, excuse me, John. I have to go get a hat because I'm going to put it on and then tip it to you. Because uh, that was uh, <laughs> that was quite well done. <laughs> I love that line. Um, yeah, the make my day line. I just, I love the whole scene. But um, I've never, uh, that's a line, I prefer the Smith & Wesson pre-log to, pro- prologue to it. Is that what the preamble to it? Because um, he doesn't sound that venomous when he says it in either at the start of the, the end of the movie or the start. Make my day. It's a very bad take. I reckon it's a bad take. Yeah. Yeah. When he uses it at the end, it's such a throwaway. But I think the, it was just, it was just so, it was just so iconic. You couldn't even, and when you saw that, that live reaction time and time again in theaters, whatever movie you were there to see, um, you just, you, you, there was just something about it. It's like this guy, mm. really, this guy is so 
calm and so sort of, you know, sort of war weary and put upon that this guy, the idea that someone killing a hostage in front of him so he has an easy excuse to kill the guy himself <laughs> would would make his day. Like that would be the thing that would turn this day around for him was so it was so preposterous, but there was so <laughs> that was as viscerally satisfying at the time as seeing the 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 bad guys, you know, getting dispatched. Well, Hal, thank you very much for coming on the program to talk about Sudden Impact or Dirty Harry 4. Oh, John, it's, uh, it was my pleasure. It was terrific to talk to you and, and fun to sit here and try to imagine the uh, what life is like where you are with something like 17 hours in my future, something like <laughs> that. Um, but uh, I really appreciate the invite. It's, it's fun to go back and, and uh, think about a movie like this and sort of revisit it. And something that was just you sort of took for granted as a teenager. It's, oh, it's fun. And he says this cool thing and he blows away the bad guys. It's nice to sort of take a <laughs> breath and and think about it uh, through uh, through the lens of a slightly more mature adult that I am now, but not much. If I hadn't have asked you on the program, how many years do you think it would have been before you pulled out the uh, DVD to watch Sudden Impact again? Ooh. You know, I, probably no more than five three to five or so that's probably something that you know periodically they'll sort of get the itch and say you know what let's let's go through the dirty, dirty harry series those are those are fun and then then you remember that you know they're they're not really the feel-good films <laughs> of their era but no, uh, you think you have uh you think you have miscongeniality dirty harriet right yes i get those two mixed up all the time i can <laughs> i can barely tell sandra bullock from clint eastwood so well, thank you so much, Hal. Where can our listeners find you? Where, where can they find Hal Bryan? Well, I do pop up on uh, a lot of the other Movies by Minute podcasts. I've, I've done uh, a couple of weeks of the, the current uh, group project as we're recording this, which is the Best Minutes podcast based on uh, the, the best years of our lives, the William Wyler classic. I did two episodes of that just this morning. Um, otherwise, uh, if you go to inspire.eaa.org, uh, you'll find links to uh, a podcast called The Green Dot. And I'm not on every episode, but I'm a frequent host, and that's uh, very specifically aviation focused. It's not, I'd say it's not pop culture, although we've done three episodes where we talk about uh, nothing but our favorite aviation movies and TV shows. So right. maybe uh, folks might get a kick out of that. Otherwise, um, it's technically finished, but we'll always be going back to do special episodes. Uh, anyone with the slightest interest in uh, uh, The Rocketeer should check out The Rocketeer ah. Minute. The complete, complete catalog is out there. And and uh, every time we say we were pretty well wrapped up, then somebody else uh, from the production sort of comes out of the woodwork and we get excited to do a few more episodes. So lucky. I wish I've reached out to the surviving um, cast members, Dirty Harry, not many, but um, a few knockbacks. So that's that's great. The Rocketeer, yeah, awesome. Uh, we had an absolute blast doing it. But uh, uh, I'll tell you, one of my favorite things about it was to sort of let that be my entry point into this world and get the chance to do things like this. And, you know, when other uh, what other set of circumstances would there be when you and I would have a chance to sit down and talk for an hour and a half about a, about a film? A couple of strangers from across the world. It's a wonderful endeavor, the movies by minute. Well, thank you so much, Hal. Maybe one day we can talk about Sully or Firefox um, or other Eastwood movies with uh, significant aviation scenes. I, uh, I love it, and uh, you consider me signed up. <laughs> well, many thanks, Hal. What you doing, you pig-head sucker? 
Every day for the last 10 years, Loretta there has been giving me a large black coffee. Today she gives me a large black coffee, only it's got sugar in it. A lot of sugar. I just came back to complain. Now you boys put those guns down. <laughs> Say what? Whoa. We're not just gonna let you walk out of here. Who's we, sucker? Smith and Wesson and me? Many people remember Dirty Harry Callahan. Everyone who does knows one or two of the inspector's catchphrases. Half that number can probably situate the phrase in the movie in which it occurs. Half that number again can probably even quote a line verbatim. But anyone who can't is forgiven. Warner Brothers has certainly never expected you to remember. After all, all the DVD covers of the five films have a similar picture of Clint Eastwood with the 44 Magnum protruding out. And the artist's rendering of our hero does all it can to obscure the aging of the inspector over the course of the series. In 1983, when sequels were novel enough that the audience didn't quite realise they were largely crap, and cinema-goers hadn't even heard of the law of diminishing returns. Dirty Harry came back after an eight-year absence, and people went mad for it. President Ronald Reagan even quoted it. But the movie itself almost didn't happen. But for Clint Eastwood's lacklustre outings in the early 80s, and a chance movie studio survey, it could all have been very different. An alternative Dirty Harry 4 had been commissioned in 1979 by Eastwood himself. During Escape from Alcatraz, Clint had learnt about an outline of a story from the writers of The Gauntlet. The writers were preparing an action movie with a loner cop battling organised crime. This cop was weary and middle-aged and losing all his battles. The feeling in the script was this would be the loner cop's last roundup. Jesus, Clint told them. That would make a terrific Dirty Harry. So the writers began to rework the script around Harry Callahan. The theme had to do with Dirty Harry growing older and his preoccupation with death, said one of the writers. He visits his wife's grave, all sorts of things like that. It would have been the last Dirty Harry. But Clint went cold on the script. Reportedly after a close friend of his had died, and he was obsessed with his own mortality. The star then arranged for Warners to let the rights revert to the writers, who would later retool the script for Chuck Norris. The script was used for his Code of Silence in 1985. Thought of then, and now, as one of Norris's better outings. The script removed the elements of the cop being on the wire with nothing to lose, 
and it was certainly no dirty Chucky. Still, said Gene Siskel, praising the film, it's been a long time between cop pictures that have any type of gritty feel. Clint Eastwood's last two Dirty Harry films were cartoonish by comparison. But Dirty Harry 4 was not to be that relatively breezy but enjoyable cop drama with a martial arts actor with a close-cut perma-beard. Instead, like its predecessor The Enforcer, we again got a nasty film with Harry Callahan crammed into it. The San Francisco Inspector would have very little to do this time around. In fact, this was a foreshadow of Eastwood's other mid-80s films like City Heat, where the star would take a back seat. And like his next film, Tightrope, where Eastwood would share the same personality traits with the killer in the movie. So, how does our hero, Harry Callahan, fare in Sudden Impact? We hear him lob jibes at his superiors, but it's all a bit by numbers now. His heart is no longer in it. We're meant to think, sort of, that he's out of touch. We get it, more of the same. In fact, I'd rather play the Dirty Harry board game by Parker Brothers than watch this movie. You don't remember, do you? Remember what? My sister and I will never forget. One night, long ago, under the boardwalk, remember? Tell me. How's your slut sister? There's one left. The biggest problem with sudden impact is the end. The inspector lets Sandra Locke's character get away with her brutal settling of scores. Sure, the inspector might look at her a little intently in lieu of verbal chastisement, but ultimately they walk off together into the embrace of Roberta Flack's song. Evidently there can be justice in revenge, and her guilt is just a technicality in the world of Dirty Harry. Sudden Impact was turned around very quickly. Written in February, filmed May-June, then released December of 1983. They forgot to film many scenes of levity, and one wonders whether the inserts of Meathead farting were added in post in desperation. The movie is the first in the Dirty Harry series without Clint's principal editor, Ferris Webster, and without polisher of dialogue and scene, Dean Reisner, both of whom 
were reportedly given the cold shoulder after apparent slights and would never work with Clint again. Maybe either of them could have whittled down the number of flashbacks in the movie. Who knows? There had been a lot of them in Firefox as well. The movie is not a total loss. The direction is a step up from the enforcer and definitely provides a more consistent tone to the viewer. Depending on your tastes, you may even find it a little classy. But there is always that dark plot which prevents too much praise. You may see it as an empowering feminist parable of corrective justice, or you might see it as an over-the-top retribution snuff piece. As Don Corleone says, that's not justice. You and your sister are still alive. While Clint had misstepped in 1982 with two disappointing films, Sondra Locke had played Rosemary Clooney in a TV movie and had earned minor praise for her acting. Looking forward to stretching herself and perhaps step out again from her partner's orbit, she was pleased to start developing a script that came to her from some low-budget filmmaker friends. But Clint appropriated the script and began to retrofit it as a Dirty Harry film. Locke shrugged it off stoically. One positive is that Sundra was ultimately given a $250,000 finder's fee for the script in addition to her acting salary. Compare this to her previous Clint film, Any Which Way You Can, where she'd earned only $100,000 as lead actress, compared to Clint's $3 million. The real trouble with the takeover of the script from Locke is that Clint organised the bare minimum, not finding a veteran screenwriter for an overhaul of the two distinctive parts. Instead, a novice bookstore clerk would suffice. Locke. Although Clint had all the money and resources to develop any story or character for himself that he wanted, he never did. He'd always choose whatever appealed to him from those scripts sent to him. It required less personal investment that way. Personal investment of money? or emotional investment if the film tanked and he could claim no creative part in the story. Perhaps a bit of both. One wonders how the original script, denuded of the San Francisco inspector, would have fared. Would an arty revenge flick be better than a mainstream revenge flick? So, Does sudden impact erode the original Dirty Harry film? Or even the preceding sequels? Probably not. The Enforcer is hardly a hill to die on in terms of quality. Cop flicks would degenerate into shoot-em-ups with heroes spouting nihilistic dialogue, but not for a few more years yet. The Dirty Harry movies are parables, devoid of nuance, The only question is whether these parables are totally garbage or entertaining diversions of action. Sometime in the late 2000s, things came swinging back 
Audiences came to crave their John Wicks or their Liam Neeson movies. Give them back their heroes, said McAfee in Mad Max. Do we recommend Sudden Impact? Well, watch Sudden Impact if, one, you want to know how honest fishermen can suddenly turn into killers, two, you want to see Dirty Harry be beaten up, three, you are interested in seeing how moody 70s flutes are downgraded into horrible 80s saxophones, four, you want to compare the prop artwork from this movie with that in Play Misty for me. Five, you want to see the only movie ever made that uses the word dyke in its literal and slur meaning. Sudden Impact is a movie about retribution. For some, a pathetic and unequal writing of a wrong. For others, a righteous writing of a wrong. The movie will make you think, for a moment, and then you'll probably recoil. You'll probably be interested enough to read a summary of the plot again, but you'll never watch it. Will you? Oh, Miss Spencer, I I can't tell you how really happy we are that you're taking over this work for the Historical Society, because your work is so impressive and so impeccably authentic. I do my research. Well, it must give you a great feeling of satisfaction to make old ugly things right again. Yes, sometimes it does. Welcome back to Dirty Harry Minute. We are now joined by one part of the Wilder Ride podcast. We have old friend Walt Murray. And first time guest to Dirty Harry Minute, we have Dave Allen. No, not that one, who, if he were to do a movies by minute, would probably do another movie from 1983, Scarface. Dave, hello. How are you? Hey, how you going, man? Good. Is this the first podcast you've done? Yeah, it actually is. So, you know, your your numbers are just going to go through the roof. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You won't better handle it. I'm going to crash the servers. Yeah. Isn't that how the rookies always feel? (laughs) Yeah. I was young once, he says. Yeah, no doubt. Thank you both, Walt and Dave, for joining us. Walt, what's your history with Sudden Impact? I actually saw Sudden Impact in the movie theater. Old man. I was uh, 14 or 15 when it came out and uh, saw it with my brother and one of my really good friends, Tommy Boyle. And, you know, to me, it's one of the classic, great Dirty Harry movies. I've always really loved it. I've probably watched it 10 or 12 times, maybe more through the years, um, just because it's been on TV a good number of times here. And But it's also just, I I love Dirty Harry. So it's one of my go-to Dirty Harry movies. This one and the original are my two favorites. Mm. And Dave, what... I believe you saw Sudden Impact for the first time just a few days ago. What did you think? Yeah, pretty much, yeah. Um, it's kind of cheesy, i got to say. Um, I liked – the first one was a lot more serious, I thought, and was a lot – I don't know. I don't know if this one they're trying to go for a bit of levity or the first one was a bit dark or something, but definitely a change 
I don't know if that's a word, or, or, or just the 80s. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I notice he's got, like, the short leather jacket. Like, I don't know, the total 80s thing. That's what stood out for me. Yeah, there, there's a lot of 80s to this one. Yeah. Like, the scenes with the dog and stuff kind of doing um, sort of comic relief. I thought it was interesting, yeah. Pretty much the only comic relief, really, is Meathead. Yes. <laughs> what about the politics, Dave? Did you think it was a typical Reagan-era sort of, you know, rah-rah film? What, where's the concern for you know, justice for the victims? Yeah, maybe. I mean, that was very much in the first one because um, this one is about a sort of vigilante. I don't know. I guess I guess in a way it kind of makes him a bit more sympathetic because she's the victim and she's he's sort of on her side, you know, they're both trying to get the scumbags, as it were. So, yeah, I don't know. It's kind of interesting, you know. They definitely want you to have sympathy for her and what she's been through, which is, you know, um, fair enough, yeah. Some people have called this a I spit on your dirty Harry movie type rape ah. revenge movie. <laughs> wow. Yes, it was funny. I, I was thinking of uh, female revenge movies like uh, there's Peppermint and uh, The Brave One from 2007 with Jodie Foster. And then, yeah, I remembered I spit on your grave. I was like, yeah. So it, it definitely has that, you know, um, shooting in penises and that kind of thing. Not too subtle, but, yeah, it gets the point across. It's a bit ugly. It's an ugly film, though, isn't it, Walt? It is. It, it it really is, in my mind, probably the most brutal Dirty Harry movie, just because the the rape scene that keeps coming back, and there there is a little bit of of levity and humor to it, but that really, to me, is kind of an overarching, um, just dark moment that you keep having to revisit. And I understand why they did it, uh, but that's a tough moment to uh, to see over and over again. Uh, but you do appreciate why uh, Jennifer became who she is, you know, and became basically a serial killer um, and goes on that, that rampage. I thought I told you I don't want you in my store. I got to talk to you, you stuck up asshole. We've got nothing to say to each other. Yeah. You hear the radio? Leave my store. Kruger's dead. They found him this morning. He had his balls splattered all over the front of his pants. I don't care, Ray. Yeah? Same thing happened to Wilburn up in San Francisco. Wilburn? Yeah. Remember him? He's dead. Once, twice, I don't care. Well, you better care, prick. I think she's come back. Who? Oh, don't try and pretend with me, you hypocritical shit. You dipped your wick just like the rest oh, of them. Oh, well, you shut your mouth. You evil witch. What's the matter? Afraid somebody's gonna hear? Afraid you'll lose some of your customers if they find out? There's nothing to find out. You make me want to puke. It's got the highest kill rate of any of the Dirty Harry movies. It's got nine kills plus one heart attack. Um, <laughs> did, which That was another comedic <laughs> moment, Dave, I, I sort of enjoyed. That was great. Yeah, that was, that, was kind of, that was kind of ridiculous. I'm a big Sopranos fan and sort of the big 
Italian wedding. That that was that that did make me laugh. It's kind of so ridiculous. And of course, you know, he hasn't got a warrant or whatever in his hand. It's just some some crap that he made up. But yeah, now you mention it, it is a lot uglier than the first one, and the violence seems sort of more graphic. And yeah, do you think, Dave, we could have got away without showing the flashback so many times? Is it helpful or is it a bit lurid to keep showing us? I mean, obviously... That's a a fascinating question. I would say it's to keep you on Jennifer's side. So it's like, you know, they did all this messed up stuff to her, put it somewhat euphemistically, and so you kind of keep remembering why she's doing what she did. But maybe they didn't have to show it so many times. Maybe just once would have been enough and you get the idea. And, of course, you see her sister is pretty much... um, a comatose or, or a vegetable, so, you know, that also drives Co- it home. Catatonic. Yes, yeah, catatonic stupor, something like that, yes. Walt, do you think Dirty Harry belongs in the 1980s? <laughs> wow, there's a good question, Jay. Um, yes, and, uh, well, yes, it, it, I'll give you a long answer on that one. Um, yep. I, I was talking to a friend of mine today who's a Navy chaplain, who services the Marine Corps in the United States. And one of the things that we were talking about was that there is such a need to train these guys to go into combat to do horrible things because our enemies are so bad. And Dirty Harry is kind of cut from that same mold, that he is somebody who you need because there are evil people around. But he sure doesn't fit the... um, you know, the, the, the trappings of, of high society in the eighties. Uh, he's one of those guys that you wish didn't have to be there, but we need him. Sort of like uh, Jack Nicholson in uh, a few good men. Yeah. 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 Very, very much that same way. Now, of course, Jack Nicholson was a criminal in that, but well, and, yeah. and Harry does push the edge at times. <laughs> Some of what he does wouldn't stand up constitutionally, but, um, but yeah, it, but it is, it's that same idea that you have to have those strong people standing there on the fence. Yeah, a necessary evil, if I can cut in. Yeah, definitely. Um, Walt, when we spoke about The Enforcer, we uh, ha- both had to admit you liked it a lot more than I did, but that it was a bit of an uneven film and the script could have benefited with a bit more revision because it's sort of two parts. This movie's the same again, I don't think you can deny it's it's part police like the first third of it is you know all your dirty harry's greatest hits you know his his lame aggression at authority and so forth and over the top and then it's a revenge film as well um is that a obviously that's not a problem for you that it's a bit uneven uh well it it, it was a little bit yeah I, I had a little bit of a problem with it um I think one of the things that Dave said a minute ago that I kind of kept asking myself was they, you kind of go, you know, it's almost like dirty Harry PI instead of dirty Harry, the cop, (laughs) because he goes to another jurisdiction. He's kind of working outside the law. He's not really supposed to be getting into the computer system. Um, And so he's not really functioning as a police officer at that point. And then you have that flashback where, or you have that scene where he has to take the 
the old folks van and chase down the guy on the stolen police motorcycle. <laughs> Shag his ass. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was awesome. And so it's almost like they have to remind you, oh, wait, he is still a cop, but he's just doing this yeah. other thing. And and so from that perspective, it, it, they, I think there were some things they felt like they had to do to remind you who he was, who she was, and why they were both on this path that kind of had it feel that, that had an awkward feel to it, if that makes sense. Yes, um, many reviewers sort of said it was more, yeah, like you say, a private investigation film noir type movie. Um, you know, it's all it's all shot at night. Both the ostensible bad guy. Um, Sandra Locke's Jennifer Spencer and, and Harry have the same sort of personality traits. Um, so, yeah, it was brought out that it's quite a, a noir film. And interestingly enough, the next movie he would do, City Heat, you know, set in the 30s as well. It has a bit of that vibe as well about PIs um, following around. Um, yeah. It's funny you mentioned the noir thing because I was just thinking that as Walt was talking, that there is kind of an element to that. He's more kind of... Yeah, more renegade, I suppose. I mean, he was a bit renegade in the first one. He doesn't play by the rules, damn it. But they kind of pushed that a bit further in the second one. So I can kind of see the, the noir angle as well. Um, yeah, especially with Jennifer, as you said. Yeah. Did you like the style, the, the direction of the movie, Dave? Um, it's a very dark um, film, literally. Did, did Was that annoying to you? Yeah, I thought that was, I thought that was uh, interesting. It kind of helped the tone uh, i think i think there are a few shots early morning as well as sort of dawn is breaking but um i kind of did in that sense it kind of gave it that sort of noirish tone so i don't think that was um such a bad thing given the darkness of the story and everything going on it felt, it felt appropriate i suppose is what i'm trying to say somehow you don't seem like the typical san paulo policeman i'm not typical san paulo San Francisco PD, homicide. This movie had a very quick turnaround like The Enforcer. Um, part of the reason was the, the movie he had done before, this Firefox, big budget film um, that didn't really turn the usual profit because of all the special effects. And Honky Tonk Man, another sort of minor dramatic piece, hadn't really done that well. So, you know, Warner Brothers reportedly, you know, Clint, you know, have you got... Has your girlfriend got something we can use? Can't we just use that script? Because he, he sort of stole it from his um, his girlfriend at the time, Sandra Locke, had this script in mind for herself. Uh, it was just going to be the revenge movie, but Clint sort of thought, hey, can't we Jerry fit this into being the next Dirty Harry film? So it was actually going to be like I Spit on Your Grave, even more like that. Yes, maybe not as lurid and as uh, X-rated. Oh, no, but- no, no, no. I just mean in the general the general. Yeah, just a bit of female red. Oh, that would have been fascinating to watch. I think actually. Hmm. Yeah, I'm trying. I'm I'm trying to picture that without Dirty Harry. And I, it's odd because I I like a lot of movies that Sandra Locke's in, but I don't necessarily like her a whole lot um, as an actress. And well, it's not her fault that most of the Clint movies she was in, like the Hicksploitation films, Apes movies and stuff, Bronco Billy, she sort of plays a, for lack of a better word, a bit of a bitch. Yeah, she does. <laughs> and, and she plays high strong. Yeah, and then you're right, in uh, Every Which Way But Loose and Any Which Way You Can, she definitely is, they want her to be a good guy, but she doesn't always come across that way. So that probably 
season seven a little bit. But yeah, I have a hard time. I I have a hard time picturing this movie without Dirty Harry in it. Really? Because Harry doesn't do much really until the last twenty minutes. Like he's always catching up. I mean, he knows something's. He knows something's amiss with the with Pat Hingle's character with the photos and yeah. so forth. Mm-hmm. But he still doesn't really put together Jennifer's the woman until the car, does he? I don't know. He's always playing catch up, more like a private investigator than a cop. And and he does add the comic relief to it. You know, it, it as as dark as Harry can be. He does kind of have the quick one-liners and, the, um, you know, Meathead shows up and pees on <laughs> like the table bar. and stuff like that. Yeah, only with humans. Yes, right. that's a good line. I thought I thought she was really good. I think she's she kind of, kind of reminds me of the younger Anne Hesh when Anne Hesh was young. Oh, okay. But she has a kind – I can see what you mean by the bitch because she seems very kind of sort of cool or cold and detached. So it kind of it kind of works for this, I think. Someone who's been through some things, I think it's good. She, it's sort of appropriate casting to me. At any rate, uh, yeah, I, I can see. I see what you're saying. Someone unkindly said her her part in this movie is like a graphic, a more graphic lifetime movie plot. That's just a bit more <laughs> X-rated. I don't know if that. But Dave, you think this movie could have been an entire movie on its own without Dirty Harry? Uh, I would have loved to have, yeah, I don't know. I, I would like to see that sort of the female revenge thing because there's no shortage of cop movies. And there aren't so many female revenge movies, as far as I know. <laughs> Maybe I'm wrong about that. So I think it would have been interesting to try and see the original script and, yeah, just the lone woman kind of thing going on revenge. Yeah, definitely. I'd definitely watch it. <laughs> the modern take of feminism is that it's a, it's a pity that women – uh, you know, a pity that women can only be strong after a tragedy, like in this and Kill Bill and I Spit on Your Grave. But um, I suppose it would have been pretty uncommon at the time, Walt, to have a movie like this where a woman's sort of empowered. Like it's not, it's not someone committing these revenge on her behalf. It's her agency in in committing in committing this uh, act of retribution. It would have been quite. Rare in the in the cinema in the eighties to have a woman as powerful as uh, Sandra Locke. Yeah, I agree. I agree a hundred percent that you you really did not have. And there's probably some movie that somebody's going to you know send a note on and say you guys forgot this. But oh yeah, <laughs> I, I'm trying to think of a movie from that time frame that would have had a strong female lead in this type of movie without her being the one who suffered. The, the tragedy. Um, you're you're yeah. right. I mean, it, it is strange that you, you have that. Um, now it's not uncommon just to see strong female characters, but it's like you always had to have a reason that they were a strong female character um, mm. at that time. Maybe if her sister wasn't, if her sister hadn't been part of the the rape, maybe, do you think she would have still gone after these guys to give them a 38 caliber vasectomy, Walt? Uh, Dave, what do you think it was? Oh, that's an interesting one I hadn't. Because she's still trying to, yeah, she's seeking revenge on behalf of her sister, really, maybe more than herself. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, I see what you're saying. Again, that's what I was talking about, that the sister helps cement the sympathy with her and not, not the guys. So, yeah, maybe not. I don't know. That's interesting. Yeah. I think that's a great question, Jay. Um, 
I because she does seem to have kind of a, a little bit of a a bit of a passive personality at times. Um, and she's an artist, and you know she doesn't have that vengefulness in the flashbacks to before the incident that happened. But it, it, her her revenge, her need for revenge does seem to revolve more around her sister than it does for her. So that's an interesting question. And I think she felt a, a strong sense of responsibility for her sister because originally she said, no, I'm taking care of my sister. She can't come to a party like this. Um, okay, we'll come just for a few minutes and then we'll leave. And then this horrible thing happens to her and her sister. But if she had just not come or not brought her sister with her, she wouldn't have suffered what she did and it wouldn't have destroyed her life. Somebody's doing some killing. I have a hunch it's gonna go on. A psycho? Probably. Of course, it could be somebody just collecting on a debt. Revenge. The oldest motivation known to mankind. And you don't approve? Until it breaks the law. On the promotion trail of this movie, Clint said, I think the public is interested in justice, and that's what Harry stands for. He's unique because he stands for the same principles from the beginning, when it wasn't terribly fashionable. People are a little edgy about the rights of criminals, taking precedent over the rights of victims. They are more impatient with courtroom procedures and legal delays. Dave, did you like Jennifer's rationale for her behavior? You know, at the restaurant scene with Harry uh, at the end of the film, where she pretty much says, you know, today's courtroom, today's liberalism, you have to really take, take justice into your own hands to achieve justice. Did you like Jennifer's rationale for that? Hmm. I don't know. It's pretty much Harry's MO, like you just laid out. Exactly, so, yeah. Um, yeah, it definitely puts them on the same page, doesn't it? Is that the only reason why he's uh, he falls in love with Sondra, because of their simpatico uh, political beliefs? Or do I, you I, don't think- know if that, I wouldn't necessarily say that's the only reason, but I don't think it would have hurt, that's for sure, you know. Um, or that, you know, he's stuck with all the, you know, the bureaucrats and the pen pushers upstairs in police department. He meets an artist of all people who kind of agrees with him. So, yeah, <laughs> stars were aligned, I suppose. <laughs> well, what, what did you think about Walt? The, the first third of Sudden Impact is pretty much, like I said before, replaying Dirty Harry's greatest hits. You know, you've got the same, maybe a more B-grade version is Friction with, um, with, McKay and the bureaucracy and that legend in your own mind. Did you enjoy those scenes? Were they just a poor facsimile of the scenes we've seen in the, the earlier installments? I do. I, I, I love those scenes and I think those are real classic Dirty Harry uh, putting the thumb in the eye of the, the big nameplate pencil pushing uh, bureaucrat. And, um, and you know, it, I don't know how it is in Australia, but in the United States, like government really is the brunt of a lot of jokes and usually rightly so. Um, but, you know, just how everything is too bureaucratic and it's too slow and government employees and, um, you know, the, the old Ronald Reagan thing of the 
five scariest uh, words of the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. I'm from the government, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And uh, so it, it really is, uh, it's a great trope and it's a great Dirty Harry. Uh, so I loved it. Uh, there, there are those patterns in the Dirty Harry movies that you know are coming. So you're like yeah. waiting for the good jab at the boss and you're waiting for the good terrorizing of the bad guy and you're waiting for the great shootout. So you always love those things in the, in the Dirty Harry movies. All these moments are sort of front loaded into the start of the movie. Um, and then you don't really hear about it. It's all about um, Sandra Locke uh, from that point on. Um, yeah, I was going to say it did. Maybe this is what we talked about before. But it does kind of feel a bit disjointed because at the start, I feel like it's just, um, I don't know, it's just Dirty Harry doing his thing. It's kind of like textbook Dirty Harry. And then she kind of comes in and it kind of felt like, I don't know, yeah, a bit sort of uneven or something. Or, you know, it's like, do they really need him beating up criminals and stuff? You know, if it doesn't sort of pertain to the story. But, yeah. We need our Harry fix, uh, Dave. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. Yeah, I think I kind of answered my own question. It's kind of what Mar- uh, what was just saying. It's kind of like the comfort food. But yeah, I mean, I totally understand that. That's fine. But it sort of doesn't serve the story. That's right. But uh, Pauline Kale said he, she called it Harry's civically cleansing shootouts. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Yeah, David, I, I agree with what you're saying there. And it kind of goes back to what you were saying, Jay, about the script, that the script was not originally yes. a Dirty Harry script. So you do have the Dirty Harry moments, but you don't have the Dirty Harry focus all the time. So Yeah, I was just thinking that as I was saying it. Sorry not to interrupt, but it, it they did feel kind of like a bit shoehorned or, yeah, because they don't, they serve to show who Dirty Harry is, but not so much advance the plotline story. Yes, yeah. yes. And I even think that that middle shootout where he was, again, chasing the people or chasing the guy on the stolen motorcycle with the old folks bus, which I thought was brilliant. Um, and the guy gets off and says something. Yeah. yeah. And But it still didn't seem like it, it felt weird having that in there. It didn't fit with the flow, but it was almost like, don't forget this is a Dirty Harry movie. Mm. Yeah, completely agree. It's not It's not a very good legacy. The last three films, Dave, Walt, you know, The Enforcer, like I said, was mostly written by film students who left a script in, his, <laughs> in Clint Eastwood's pub and then, you know, sharpened up. Nice. Sudden Impact was written by these low-budget filmmakers of Sondra Locke and then um, the next one, The Deadpool, you won't believe this, was actually written by Clint's nutritionists. <laughs> no way. That's... Wait. Yes, wait, Ted. <laughs> yes, that's the one with um, with Jim Carrey in it as a rock star that uh, ODs or something. That is so horrible. That is yeah. That is weird. just a pain. But I do like movie. that movie. It's quite brief. It goes for 90 minutes. It doesn't take too long but yeah the shortest in the uh the series and yet it still had the least content <laughs> that's right yes. Yes. <laughs> isn't there isn't there a karate scene in there or something like that is there his partner was yeah. there like some martial arts or something which i guess was cool at the time or something maybe mr d'ambrosia this case is a travesty you have no evidence whatsoever linking the accused to the murder 
The gun found in his car was obtained as the result of an illegal search. In the eyes of the court, it does not exist. The search was illegal because Inspector Callahan, and this is an old story, did not have sufficient probable cause for detaining Mr. Hawkins. The gun is inadmissible, and the charges against the defendant are dismissed. So as, as previously discussed, uh, his previous films in 1982 hadn't done that well, and uh, he was now amenable after eight years to come back and do another Dirty Harry instalment. But the other context was there was there was also a studio poll that was done by I think Universal and Warner Brothers together. Um, basically, they wanted to know if people would be interested in seeing uh, Sean Connery in a new Bond film. It being Never Say Never Again, but also entered the top list. That people would love to see Clint Eastwood come back as Dirty Harry. So what, this was a survey they did? They surveyed the public or something? That's right, yeah, sample uh, of, of people, of heroes, studio, you know, films, characters you'd like to see come back. Okay. That's always a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> I've not seen Never Say Never Again, so I don't know if that was a mistake in the end, but, uh, yeah, Connery um, and... Um... It's good. It's it, Yeah, it's worth seeing, and I... I I would bet that if you saw that, you would have the same some of the same feelings about that movie that you have about this one. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, a little ragged, not a perfect Bond film. Um, focus goes and comes. Uh, good gadgets, but um, yeah, a little. Uh, and Rowan Atkinson. Yeah. Yeah. What? <laughs> Rowan Atkinson plays Q, I think, or is that in the proper one? Oh, so the, the, is that the he's the gadget geek? I think so. Yeah, memory. I think he is. Yeah, I think that's right. Yep. So back then, eight years was probably a long time. If you didn't see a character again, you know, you'd think, oh, he's probably done for. We're not going to see Dirty Harry anymore. Now, not so much. I mean, you've got Bill and Ted movies coming out 30 years afterwards and and uh, a whole lot of properties that are coming back, Star Wars and so forth, that um, it's now it's just commonplace. But back then it would have been quite unusual. I think you, you see a character and then eight years have gone by, Oh, that's it. That's it. They're not going to remake. They're not going to do a sequel franchise of that. But, yeah, uh, it's 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 kind of weird. I guess now a lot of the time um, they're reboots, so they diff- have different actors d- doing the doing the same characters. I did hear a couple of years ago that with downloading sort of piracy and stuff, that studios are getting more conservative in what they make, and that's why they pump out comic book movies constantly. Um, and hence these sort of remakes. I don't know if that's true, but some, something to chew on. But it feels like they're constantly just remaking the same thing. <laughs> Maybe I'm turning to a grumpy boomer. I don't know. <laughs> Possibly. Well, I, I didn't... But yeah, eight years is a long time. It is, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, this movie was very successful, guys. It earned around Ooh. $70 million at the time, which is quite a lot. Um, and Clint got 60% of the profits. So quite a money earner for him. Is it, is it made 70 or like earned 70? Is that like net or is that gross? Or? 70 is the gross, I think, but from a budget of 22 yeah. million and Clint receiving, you know, the 60% of that 40 of the gross, quite a very good deal. Well, if you look at a lot of movies on Wikipedia, which have been doing, they make a lot of money gross, but in terms of net, often they don't seem to make that much money. It's it's crazy. Like they spend seventy million to make it 
and you know sorry they spent like 50 million to make it and get back 60 million it feels like it's, it's not a huge gain if you know what i mean but anyway yeah that's why clint was very very apt to get the gross doesn't have to worry about those fluctuating overheads that the studio uh, says they need so that's great my man um, played the long game yeah uh, it sort of reminds me that that scene where Jennifer goes to sell her art, checking on her art gallery sales. Do you remember that scene? And um, yes, the woman says, "Your paintings are so dark. You're going to make so much money, just like Clint <laughs> made so much money for this dark film." I don't know if that was on Ooh. purpose, but there you go. Oh, you think it could have been like a a nod or an illusion? <laughs> well, it certainly turned out happening. I didn't really buy her as an artist, though. I got to say, I didn't find her believable. Maybe it's just the clothes she wore, but anyway. <laughs> Why, they were drab and just mundane and no no flair in her clothes? Um, well, she just looked like she was a corporate lawyer or finance or something. <laughs> or librarian. I don't think I've ever met an artist that dresses like that, but prove me wrong, Mm-mm. yeah. A librarian. Mm, more corporate. <laughs> I'm going to die on this hill. Yeah. No, I I see. I know exactly what you're saying. I didn't get that feel from her either. If you before they told me she was an artist, that is not what I would have guessed that she was. No, she looks like a board member, accountant. Well, I think that's just for the better, Dave. Like, I don't think Harry Callahan could fall in love with a, a real artist. Well, well, she is an artist. It's a bit weird. Do, do you find it yeah, weird? Yeah. yeah. Once again, is is she his type? Well, they're almost mirrors of each other. You know, they're kind of damaged renegades who aren't afraid to use violence when the law doesn't do what they think it should. So, you know, maybe they're too close, but I don't know. Yeah. You know, it's it's interesting that you say that, Dave. It, they are, they're both damaged. And I think you almost have two of her character, the before the attack and after the attack. I don't think that the before the attack, Jennifer would have been at all interesting to Harry. But oh, the after the attack, no, that's an Jennifer point. definitely is because of that, that mindset. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that, but no, I completely agree. Yeah. Do you agree, John? I do, but where does Harry's damage come from? Harry's trauma is he lost it just his life. Yeah, that's right. But it wasn't as a result. <laughs> it, it wasn't as the result of di- direct malice. I mean, it was a drunk driver. We we we've intimated. And didn't he oh. also fight in the Korean War? That's not canon. It's sort of canon. Expanded universe, perhaps, because in um in Magnum Force, member uh, Charlie McCoy says we should have done our twenty in the Marines. We should have done, uh, but maybe yes. they did the twenty in here. Yeah, so it's unclear. But, yeah, I guess a drunk driver killing your wife, but it's not like it was – it's a bit different if your wife was, you know, gang raped or something. I don't know. I think it's enough to damage you. Yeah, yeah, and 10 or 15 years of being a homicide detective in San Francisco, California, that will do a <laughs> – that will take a toll on you. So – Dave, as we went over and over and over and over the script of Dirty Harry minute by minute <laughs> – we realise yes. he says, his, his actual lyrics, he, he says, a drunk crossed the centre line. There was no reason for it, really. A drunk crossed the centre line. It could have been Harry himself. 
couldn't it? So maybe he he's living with that oh. trauma. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. You think that's deliberate? They they left it ambiguous. I mean, yeah, they knew forty five yeah. years later, some podcasters would be trawling over every <laughs> bit of evidence they could. <laughs> Presumably, you'd lose your license to be a cop if you drunk drove your own wife to a death. But I don't know. But interesting. Well, they didn't have breathalysers in Australia until the mid-70s, so I doubt they would have. Well, who knows? You can make. Well, and law enforcement at that time was different than law enforcement today. Yes, no doubt. They would have, they would have done, they would have protected the, the officer. Damn, meathead. What did you call me? Oh, I was talking to the dog. Well, guys, um... I think, so, Walt, you quite like this movie. Is that fair to say? I do. I mean, even for its faults, I, I do like this movie. And I'm aware that it's hard to praise a movie where the principal plot is about a rape revenge. Um, I understand that. What about you, Dave, though? Did, what did you think of this movie? Is it a Scarface? Is it as good as Scarface? <laughs> Nothing's as good as Scarface. Uh, I didn't like it that much. I liked the first one more. I felt, I don't know, a little bit, yeah, I don't know, kind of a little bit jumbled and a little bit awkward, I guess, as we've sort of said. So, But you've yeah. only seen the, this one and the original, right? You haven't seen any of the other yes, sequels? Yeah, I, I, like the, I like the original more. I felt, I don't know, it just felt a bit more cohesive and not quite so silly, I guess. I felt this one sort of felt silly, sort of at times at least. Although there's probably silly bits from the first one that I'm forgetting, putting me no, on the spot. So Nothing. Yeah. No fat on that script at all. It's perfect. Cease your blasphemy. Yes. <laughs> the only, the only Sherrick, it was the word Skerrick. The only, uh, the only, fil- the only bit I thought could be trimmed was a bit of the helicopter scenes. They could have been trimmed a little bit, bit boring, but that's just from my 21st century view. Um, well, you guys, th- this was a very well received movie. Uh, oh. the, probably the best received Dirty Harry up until this point. Really, in terms of critics. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's surprising. That is surprising. Surprising? Yeah. <laughs> um, fun fact, originally there was some talk of another Dirty Harry 4 uh, that was going to be written by the screenwriters of The Gauntlet, um, and it ended up being made a few years later with a few changes, just a few, as Chuck Norris's Code of Silence. Has anyone seen that? Ah, uh, yes. Yep. <laughs> no. Oh, they changed it quite a lot, but um, yeah, that was also in the mix for being a, the next instalment rather than this. You would have to change that a lot. That's not a Dirty Harry at all. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, ha- I I felt duty obliged to watch it again for this podcast. Um, <laughs> and yeah, Chuck Norris is very, very different uh, from Clint Eastwood, but there's a few lines. So, so what is it? Is, is, is a cop? Is a cop thing or... Yeah, yeah, he's a cop. Um, he's trying to nab a, 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 a narco, a, a boss. There's a there's a oh. drug raid that goes wrong, um, like across uh, gangs, and he has to um, uh, Phil Silver get him in the end. And at the same time, there's a subplot where a policeman, a drunk colleague, shoots a, a teenage boy in a hallway and plants a gun on him. And uh, everyone sort of closes ranks in support of the guy who's actually played by the keep the change, you filthy animal from Home Alone. And uh, no. yeah, Norris is having none of that. And he goes, I'm not going to sign a commendation. And uh, 
Yeah, but you're right, Walter. It would have to be... They changed it quite a bit. They give Chuck Norris a few Dirty Harry-type lines, but when Chuck... <laughs> When Chuck delivers them, it just sounds shit. Like he goes, funny, the harder you hit him, the better the English gets. And um, he says to the bad guy, if I wanted your opinion, I'd beat it out of you. But it just, it sounds really weak coming from Chuck Norris. I don't know if he gives Norris heads, but. That's definitely a dirty, hairy line, though. Yeah. <laughs> and one of his colleagues also is shot in, like, the paramedic wants to cut off his shoes. Sort of like Harry with the pants. And he's like, no, no, no. Do you know how much these shoes cost? So, And there's a lot of helicopter shops of Chicago sort of standing in for San Francisco. And there's a Lars rocket. <laughs> so there's a few Dirty Harry bits in there, but it's it's quite different, really. Was, was that well received? I'm tipping no. I think it was, from what I can read. <laughs> like they I don't said know it was, anything about movies. They said it was a big leap. Like it was a big leap for Chuck Norris. Like he'd actually done quite well. Um, I think yeah. I think you know who the who the who the people uh, Ebert and Siskel, Siskel liked it. They called it Dirty Chucky, but I don't, don't buy it. <laughs> but you know, at that time, there were so many movies like that. You know, uh, the action adventure movies were everywhere. So I could understand why that it was well received. It wasn't anything out of the ordinary. That was, you know, there was just a ton of that. That genre of movie. Hey, Callahan. Don't look so puked out. Better luck next time, fool. (laughs) (laughs) Listen, punk. To me, you're nothing but dog shit. You understand? And a lot of things can happen to dog shit. It can be scraped up with a shovel off the ground. It can dry up and blow away in the wind, or it can be stepped on and squashed. So take my advice. Be careful where the dog shits you. You're a class act, Callahan. A real class act. Speaking of the past, guys, do you want to hear about some (laughs) other things that happened in 1983? Absolutely. No, I've been meaning to look it up purely because it's my birth year. All right. Well, um, when you were in the cinema, you could also have marvelled at these things that happened in 1983. Number one. Scarface. Scarface. All right, done. We're done. Good night. (laughs) Well, I feel duty-bound to mention other significant films. Return of the Jedi. Just a small film. Superman 3. What, Man 3? Superman. Oh, 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 yeah, cool. Octopussy? Oh, yeah. Oh, we got a Bond. Bond. And uh, the other one, Never Say Never Again, we had National Lampoon's Vacation. Classic. Oh, awesome. Awesome. War Games? Oh, I love that movie. Is that the one, is that the one about the computers that set off a war or something? Yes. You got it. How about a game of thermonuclear war? Is it good? I haven't seen it. I vaguely know of it. I really like it. I love it's it. It's a great okay. movie. I, you you have to see it. Okay. Well, I'll get on it. BMX Bandits, Australian Is that the one with classic. Nicole Kidman? Yes, it's her first real movie. I've never actually seen it. I've seen it in video stores, but never rented it. <laughs> What's a video store? Yeah. There you go. <laughs> I'm, I'm lying. I wish I was that young. Yeah. King of Comedy. Oh, that's... Hey, on King of Comedy, that's another 
cult movie or famous one? Martin Scorsese, yeah, with um, a wannabe, a wannabe Robert uh, Robert Nero playing a wannabe um, uh, talk show host who takes someone hostage, being the famous Jerry Lewis. Um, oh. I'll just burn through the others: the right stuff, risky business, <laughs> trading places, and Twilight Zone the movie. They made a Twilight Zone movie. Yeah, it's a great movie. Is it? Is it? It's a, is it um, anthology. Yeah, there's like three story, four stories, with some interstitial stuff with Albert Brooks and um, Dan Aykroyd. A bit more of a yeah. Don't look it up now. Bit of tragedy in its making as well. Yes, yeah, that is a horrible thing. But William Shatner's in it. He plays the guy on the plane who keeps looking out the window and seeing the monster tear the plane up. No, John Lithgow. Uh, re- they remade it with John Lithgow oh, playing right, uh, right, Shatner's right. character. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, Lithgow. I uh, I think Lithgow did a better job, even though I, I yeah. love Shatner. Lithgow was awesome in it. Anyway, other things. Microsoft Word was developed. Wow. 83. Wow. SDI, otherwise known as Star Wars, was championed by President Ronald Reagan. A reportedly... Reportedly, it was taken out of mothballs after Reagan actually saw war games, apparently. <laughs> what? Yeah. Yeah, it was all... There was a lot of hype around that. Yeah, wasn't um, Star Wars a kind of um, Cold War kind of thing? Yeah, was it satellite with lasers, Walt, or some sort of... Yeah, some way to bring down missiles so if the Soviets ever fired their missiles at us, we could... We had this kind of Star Wars shield over us that would blow them out of the sky. Ah, uh, okay. So it was a lot of, I mean, some of it they were testing, but there was, it was a lot of propaganda. Right. Yep. Unfortunately, we had up to uh, 4 million deaths in Ethiopia. Um, so that's a tragedy. We had the American invasion of Grenada, Grenada. Uh, you know that from Heart, Heartbreak Ridge, <laughs> Marine Corps Minute. Uh, Mario Brothers was released in July in the arcade, in arcade form, I guess. Man, I, I remember that. That was huge. Yeah? Really? I don't remember being arcade so much. But fun fact, apparently Mario wears a hat because they couldn't make his hair look right. So they just gave him a hat. <laughs> I, I do the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, the population of China reached one billion for the first time. Jesus. Jesus. It's slowed down since then, right? Yeah. And then it started back up and who knows what it is. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Motorola sells its first mobile phone to the public. 1983. You know those big bricks, Dave? Yeah, it was a big bag phone. Yes. Right? Mm. Did, did car, didn't car phones come first? I don't believe so. Or oh, maybe I just that was they did. not use. I don't think it was using an actual telephonic signal. Like it might have been more a radio device rather than actually using um, stations. You know what I mean? Oh, okay. Interestingly enough, in the 1973, the Magnum Force episode, Dirty Harry 2, um, was when I think someone had tried to make the first ever. Uh, mobile phone call or cell phone, as, as you say in America, directly 10 years before. Whoa. Margaret Thatcher wins a landslide second victory in um, England and 
the Labour Party in Australia wins office for the first time in eight years. Who was that? Who was the Prime Minister? Guess. Bob Hawke. Oh. Yep, yeah. very good. Um, and the final episode of MASH plays on TV. Yeah. You a MASH fan, Walt? Huge MASH fan. The last couple of years, not as much, um, but I remember everything stopped for that last episode. Uh, I, I, I would bet that 95% of the people in my high school watched that episode. I haven't seen it, but I've been told about it, and apparently it is dark as all get out. It is dark, but I'll tell you, if you if you go watch it, it fits, and it definitely fits their last season. But one of the things that I've always been interested in is how you end a show. So for shows that make the decision that they're ending versus shows that just get canceled, how do you wrap it up? Yeah. And I thought, I still think that is one of the best endings of all time. Um, I think Cheers has a good one. I did not like Seinfeld's ending, even though I love Seinfeld, still do. Um, but MASH kind of set a high bar on wrapping up a series. Yeah, I think for me, Six Feet Under has the best final episode. Um, if you've seen that, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> if you know, you know. Yeah. I haven't. I'll have to go watch that. Yeah. If you haven't seen the show, I guess, I don't know how much <laughs> impact it's going to have. Yeah. The Seinfeld one was kind of funny. I don't know. It was funny. No, I don't know how you wrap up a sitcom. It's, I don't know how you do that. It's tough to do. I wouldn't want to have to do it. The wrapping up of Dirty Harry is pretty bad in the Deadpool where he <laughs> he shoots a bad guy with a harpoon gun. Yeah. And says he's he's hanging he's hanging back there. Terrible. Yeah, he goes out on a low point. That's what I used to love watching violent movies as a kid. You'd always wait for the bad guy to get a really cool death. That's always what I remember now. <laughs> yeah, but that was a little weird even for... Um, I mean, that was, a, that was a weird one for Dirty Harry. Come on, cop! Come on, let's join the party! We got a class reunion happening up here! <laughs> let the girl go, punk. Oh, let my baby go? I can't do that. Those are some of the bigger things that happened in 1983. <laughs> I wrote down some things also that I've encountered about San Francisco. Um, if you guys are interested to hear how the city had, had fared since the since the last movie. Yeah, come on. Since you did your homework. Well, as we know, even today, San Francisco, you know, it's always going to be a, a liberal city. But by the early 1980s, the 60s were definitely over in the Bay Area. And... Since The Enforcer, 1976, things had even deteriorated more. In June 1978, Proposition 13 passed, which I think might be all of California, I'm not sure, but it meant that no, uh, there's going to be no further land tax, and meaning that the, the revenue base of the city was, was going to stagnate and not keep up with inflation. 
you had a whole lot of strange movements like the Jonestown congregation, um, uh, you know, f- uh, particularly out in this suburb called the Western Edition, Lower Pacific Heights. Um, originally, it was thought they might be doing positive things for the community, might be a new source of energy, of vitalism in, in the city. But uh, we know how that went, Dave, didn't we? Yeah, I don't, don't think it quite worked out. Did, did they start in San Francisco? They started in Chicago, but short. Yeah, they started in Chicago, kind of got run out, and ended up in San Francisco. And even when so many of their followers committed suicide in uh, Ghana, there was still a significant number of their followers in San Francisco. Right. You can actually, if you're really up for it, you can can get the audio... Well, I say footage, whatever, of like the last 80 minutes of Jonestown on YouTube. I don't know yeah, how someone found the it. The podcast, the last podcast on the left, has a five or six epi- episode series on that. And, and in it, they play that audio. It's chilling. It is, it will definitely make you think when you start hearing religious leaders tell you to do crazy things. So. Yeah, I saw a movie, I think 2013. I can't remember what it's called, but it's kind of like modern-day Jonestown, and he's like a Vice.com reporter, goes down to visit them. And I found it really disturbing. <laughs> like, I watch a lot of horror movies, but this one kind of messed me up. Quite a bit dark there. <laughs> so, yeah, as, you, as you've alluded to, 18th of November, 1978, uh, we had the Jonestown Massacre. Oh, is that what it was? Yeah, okay. Yeah. And then a week later, pretty much, or no, I think, Nine or ten days later, we had the assassination of um, Mayor Muscoyne and Harvey Milk. There was also some intimation that Muscoyne had, I don't know, allegedly, allegedly maybe made things easier for the Jonestown Massacre to to settle in. I, I don't quite know what the link was there, but um, I think in their early days, maybe he might have been associated with Jones or attended a camp rally or something like that? I, I believe there was somebody who worked in the mayor's office who had early on become a follower of Jones. And oh, okay. they were doing tons of stuff for the poor and the elderly. And oh, okay. I mean, they were really doing some super positive things, but then they were using that to fund their church because they do things like, well, we'll keep helping you. You just sign over your house to us. And so they would basically steal people's houses. But the mayor's office was like, hey, these people are feeding the poor and cleaning up streets and helping drug addicts. So, you know, from their perspective, and it was like the auditor for the mayor's office who was a follower. So it's it's a really weird intertwined mess. The assassination of Muscoyne and Harvey Milk was done by the former um, supervisor, Dan White, who was a former policeman. Hello, San Francisco policeman, who had been elected <laughs> supervisor originally in his campaign literature. He talked about malignancies, an unfortunate word to use, uh, code word probably for stepping up for the you know average white, well, your average suburban, as far as you can be suburban in San Francisco family against probably code word for Latinos and gays, I would think, at that time. So yeah, that's how it, the city is. And in nineteen, no, sorry, December seventy-eight, the famous Winterland Rock Venue closed. Famous to many, a uh, pop cultural a gig in the sixties. So 
you know, people have said this was the beginning of the end for, for rock music, a nail in the coffin, you know, goodbye Jefferson Airplane, hello Jefferson Starship. and <laughs> That was a dark day. <laughs> rock, rock has become too big for these small venues. It's now hello stadium, hello, oh, hello Russian, all that sort of stuff, yeah. So, yeah, Interesting. looking a bit dark for San Francisco in these intervening years. Well, guys, that's all I've got to say about Sudden Impact. Um, you got any other comments on the movie as a whole? No, I think I'm good. Are you guys all ready to do an audio commentary with me sometime in the future? Or- Absolutely. Yeah, I think so. Okay, we'll catch you next time on Dirty, Dirty Harry, Harry Minus. Minute. Push it to the minute. Minute. Scarface. Get more out of life. Go out to a movie. Bailiff, next. Then shove a jack up your ass. I want to bust your ass down the traffic. God damn it, Callahan. People have a nasty habit of getting dead around you. Do you know the emergency phone number for San Francisco General? Yes, I do. Well, why don't you uh, call them right now and have them send down an ambulance? Tell them there's two sorry-looking assholes here with multiple contusions and various abrasions and broken bones. Say, did you see our sisters in the morning? Why don't you get the hell out of here? Why don't you boys go suck some fish heads, huh? You're a dinosaur, Callahan. Your ideas don't fit today. Just what ideas are these? That murder is a crime, that it shouldn't be punished? That's a question of methods. Everybody wants results, but nobody wants to do what they have to do to get them done. And you do? I do what I have to do. Wounded I fell from the sky You fed me right from your hand Once a small frightened dove Now a falcon on your glove Strong enough to fly should you The hardest thing in the world is to do nothing, and he does it very well. He gives the impression uh, that uh, all the other actors are overacting. Acting isn't just rolling on the floor and screaming and yelling, uh, though that's more sensational, much as when a tap dancer is crossing his hands like this and jumping up and down, it looks more sensational than when Fred Astaire is doing a very subtle uh, step. Uh, Subtlety is often isn't as appreciated maybe as somebody breaking into tears and ranting and raving. It, it just a, a lot of times people think you're not acting, but you cannot carry an audience for a couple hours with the film unless you're concentrated on what you're doing. 
And what comes across on the screen is a man with a very narrow range of emotions. Now, the Clint Eastwood off the screen may be a very affable man. In fact, the laugh lines on his face, uh, which make him resemble Shirley MacLaine at times, suggest that he's probably a very genial person. I was fascinated to watch his particular kind of behavior and his movements. Uh, there's a certain line of American actors who are immensely different from uh, British actors. And he is in the great line of, shall we say, Spencer Tracy or James Stewart or Bob Mitchum. They have a kind of uh, dynamic lethargy. They appear to do nothing and they do everything. Uh, it was uh, very instructive, actually, to watch Clint move around these so-called classical actors because um, he reduced everything to an absolute minimum. Uh, if he had, I remember, for instance, he had perhaps a four-line speech and he reduced it to four words and it was enormously effective, much more effective than if he'd spoken the four lines. Well, I think he's barely an actor at all. That is, he has minimal resources, but that doesn't necessarily matter for a screen actor. Too many players, actors and actresses react too much and I think uh, the, the cinema hero on the whole should not react enormously. Uh, one can't, you, you know, the, the, the great players, Spencer Tracy, Gary Cooper, ha have not um, really shown enormous emotional reactions and I think that it is one of his strong qualities that he presents this almost impassive figure who yet reacts in action. He's got that indefinable something that is uh, the best in America, I think. Uh, we sort of look up to him. He's clean-cut. Uh, he's strong. He's resolute. He's honest. As an actor, he's still relatively unacclaimed. Perhaps the legacy of Rawhide and the Spaghetti Westerns has blinded critics to any progress he may have made. I once did a, a play as part of an English project, a one-act play, uh, when I was in junior high school. I hated it at the time. I mean, I enjoyed, I enjoyed doing it. We were kind of a hit. <laughs> but uh, I was such a nervous wreck, I was, I was ready to cut school. I, didn't, uh, I just didn't figure that was my bag. I, the, the part of the lead in the play was an introverted uh, kid, and I was an introverted kid, so my teacher picked me for the job, figuring that I'd just act myself. Well, uh, we got through it, but I, I made up my mind then I'd never get involved with anything to do with acting again. If uh, Clint Eastwood wanted to play Hamlet, I think that the cinema public would be extremely indignant, you see. They like seeing him, I do too, they like seeing him as this solitary creature, this avenging figure, or this becoming a romantic figure.